1: en los diferentes estados.
2: coincidence that's the blob by the five blobs and if i'm not mistaken that's the remastered version released in 2011 and available on apple music what a coincidence that that song is on the radio what a coincidence who would have
3: thought and and when was the last time we heard that song on the radio gosh probably (laughs) 1958 maybe probably probably
2: I, i wonder why it's playing on the radio why is it a coincidence you know, before we get into that, let's welcome everybody. This is our regular monthly episode of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. It's episode 44, but this is a little different. Richard and I, as you can tell from the ambient noise, are on our way to the drive-in theater. Tell us what we're going to do when we get there, and why are why are we doing that, Richard? Well, we, we had to first
3: get in our way-back machine to travel back to... February of 1959, but it but it's nice out. It's nice out. We're headed to the outdoor theater in Clearwater, Florida, and uh, they have got a fantastic double feature playing tonight. Two films released in 1958, The Blob and I Married a Monster from Outer Space. And so we're going to practice our social distancing. We're going to be following all the guidelines, even though I guess we really don't have to because it's 1959. But hey, we'll do that anyway. Wearing our Classic Horse Club masks available on Public, <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plug. Uh, yeah, we're gonna go to the drive-in and, and catch a couple movies and have a good time amongst the stars there at the outdoor theater.
2: Yes, it's a lovely day and we are in Florida, like you said, so that's why we can go in February to the drive-in. It's very nice. We'll have all, all our regular features. I hope we don't get too distracted on the road as we, we talk about them, but uh, we'll, we'll be doing those from the car on the way to and from the drive-in. Gosh,
3: you wanna just get started? Yeah, you know, as, as we're headed there, with this whole idea, we're gonna be heading to the drive-in all summer long, right? I mean, that's, there's a, that's what you do. A lot of people love going to the drive-ins. Drive-ins are making a comeback this year. I mean, right now, most drive-ins are reopening. And it's the best way to social distance and see some uh, some classic movies here in, uh, in in modern day 2020. They uh, there's even talk of uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein being played at, at some drive-in theaters. I don't think we'll have that in Kansas City. I, I would hope that'd be pretty cool. Uh, nonetheless, you know, drive-ins kind of were down and out for a while, but have made a comeback slowly never going to be at the peak where they were in 1958, which I think is interesting because the movies we're covering are from 58. And that was actually the peak year for drive-in theaters. But drive-ins had been around at that point for decades. I didn't realize that they actually started. The very first drive-in theater was in 1933 in Camden, New Jersey. It was the Park Inn Theater. I don't have the movie that they played. It was, I believe, a British film, so nothing, nothing cool, nothing, no monster flick or anything like that. But uh, drive-in theaters, you know, were kind of slow in the 30s. And a few more in the, started popping up, but by the 1950s, they they exploded in popularity. It was a perfect place for family entertainment. You could, you know, take the family, sit in your car. You could bring a baby. There was playground equipment for the kids. Uh, the parents could smoke, as we see people smoking all the time in 1950s movies. Yes, they could sit there in their car, and uh, you know, even the the youngsters, the young teenagers, could get a little frisky on the back rows. Um, they offered a lot more flexibility than regular indoor theaters. And by 1958, there was at least 4,060 plus movie theaters, drive-in movie theaters, across the country. I don't know what the total is. Uh, In 2020, I know that uh, in recent years, those numbers have kind of gone up. They fluctuated a little bit here in Kansas City. I know we had three drive-in theaters, but one of them did close. So now we just have two. We have the Boulevard, and we have the Twin Theater uh, over on the uh, east side of town, which is actually part of the B&B franchise. And they're already open, and they're playing... Uh, classic movies right now Boulevard hasn't opened yet I think this is an anniversary year for the Boulevard but uh, they have yet to reopen I assume at some point this this summer probably within the next month or so they'll reopen and, and start playing some classic movies and some family movies You know, up here in,
2: in uh, Minnesota I'm not really familiar with their drive-ins there are two or three of them there's one not far from where my daughter lives uh, the High Line maybe a week ago were still closed for the season however they are open i believe this weekend the highline open they're just playing uh, onward and uh, the new pixar movie and another type family movie so i'm hoping uh they'll you know have some special screenings uh, some double feature horror movies
3: or something on a special night and uh, it seems like there's a limited selection of films that some of these theaters are offering i know like the twin theater is owned by BNB and BNB is starting to open their regular movie theaters this weekend, but not to like the public they're, they're What they're trying to do is encourage people to rent the theater and then you can get a screening of a film, but your choices are limited to like, uh, Goonies, uh, Grease, Mean Girls. I forget the name of the abominable movie that, that came out last fall It's like $200 to rent the theater and you are only allowed to have like so many people. So I think it comes out to like $13 a ticket, which really is not a great deal. If you're watching an old movie like The Goonies, I mean, yeah, you're getting that movie going experience. But considering that when a lot of these places play those old movies, they usually have like $5 ticket prices. I get it. It, It's a way to support your theater and i certainly would love to support the bmb i i I did a few months ago we bought some popcorn when they were selling it don't want to see them go under but i wish they they'd have a bit more variety and 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 maybe some options i i don't know that you know i'd be able to come up with 20 people to go see frankenstein on the big screen and i don't know that i would do it for 13 dollars a ticket to be honest with you it seems like you could get a better deal if you do a $20 carload and go to the drive-in. And they've had a few interesting films. They did like, I think, Raiders of the Lost Ark last week, but it's really limited choices. You know, I guess we'll wait and see if Dracula versus Frankenstein starts making the rounds across the country, and uh, I'd love to see that. I'd love to, let's take advantage of this time and see some great classic drive-in flicks. I don't know, though, that I don't know how many theaters are going to jump on that because they're they're wanting families, they're wanting numbers. And let's be honest, as much as you and I would pay to go see Dracula versus Frankenstein, a family with kids are not going to go see it. They're they're looking for the onward and the trolls movie. Uh, nonetheless, you know, back in the day, concession stands were were a big attraction too. They offered more than the usual popcorn and candy as we've all seen those great drive-in intermission ads, you could get barbecue sandwiches and you could get pizza and you know you could get ice cream and those kind of things were not in regular movie theaters back then. Now, yes, you can go to most theaters and, and, and have hamburgers and, and chicken meal and the whole nine yards. Back then you couldn't. That's, that was the attraction of those concession stands. And some even had full restaurants During the peak of the drive-in mania, some had food attendants that would actually bring the food to your cars. Those were big attractions, and um, the outdoor theater came in the midst of that, the the peak of of drive-in theaters. I mean, it it did not have a short life, though. As I was doing the research for this, we wanted to pick movies that were really, you know, actual attractions at a actual drive-in movie theater in a specific year. And that's, that's that was what we wanted to go for. But before I go into the outdoor theater even more, something cool came up when we posted about it this week. Our good friend, Bill Mize, actually lives in the neighborhood of where the outdoor theater was. And he's got some comments on the history of the theater. and what it is today but first before we dive into to his fantastic voicemail that he left us
2: i do want to call out i just got a facebook notification on our facebook group page the classic horse club podcast we have a new member steve jenkins so welcome steve i hope you're enjoying the community that we're trying to establish uh you will read interesting things in that community such as what uh, joe carson posted and i really appreciate all of joe's posts um, do he do? I do those things I don't really hear anywhere else. So he's a, a valuable contributor, and Joe, I really appreciate that. He posted a, a link to the Monster Minions blog about the death of, of death of John Llewellyn Moxie a, a prolific director. I missed that if he had not posted it, and that is relevant to us, Rich, because he directed the Night Stalker on TV, the 1970s TV movie that we've talked about.
3: Well, the Monster Minions blog is uh, Barry Harding's page. Where is it? Uh, really? Yes. I That's his blog. That. The, About the only thing that he posts anymore is uh, the passings. Rest in peace. Okay. Postings for, for anyone who has passed. He does some model-related stuff. Occasionally does other things. He he, uh, he doesn't do, at least from what I can tell, he doesn't do regular posts on other things. But if, if someone passes guarantee that if it's related to the monster community he's going to recognize it on his page I don't know if Barry's a listener but uh, shout out to Barry Harding and, and uh, his, his page has been around for a while he's his blog's been around for, for quite a few years
2: yeah I always wonder when people post links is that their blog or somebody else's and I actually on monster minions tried to find if there was a home page or an about or something and I couldn't figure out so I'm glad to know that John Llewellyn Moxie, besides The Night Stalker, uh, he had directed in the 60s Psycho Circus, which is also known as Circus of Fear. A bunch of other kinds of movies ended his career in television. And besides The Night Stalker, one of your fond movies that we've mentioned many, many times, where have all the people gone?
0: Oh, yeah. Okay.
3: Anyway, I know you're doing television films, aren't you? I yes. I yeah, I'll talk about that
2: later, but that'll be coming up soon on my blog. Uh, that'll be. That'll give me a reason to to
3: revisit that and to to uh, introduce that that movie to uh, to Carla. I, I love the made for TV films. That one, that one's always been one I've talked about it here before on the show. It's, an, it's a movie that I lost track of over the years. And when I rediscovered what the name of it was, I remembered certain scenes from it. That's a fun one uh, that I wish. As I know, you've been watching those made-for-TV movies. Getting good copies of some of those films is, is a little hard to find. Lost in the muck and mire of rights issues and things, those made-for-TV films. There's a lot of good ones out there, and that that's one that was uh, its a lot of fun. It's got the familiar Peter Graves, Mission Impossible fame and such. So love to talk
2: about that sometime. I still want to do an episode of 70s TV movies. So. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So we appreciate that feedback. We appreciate the the communication on the group page. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. We have a special phone number for that. 616-649-2582. That's 646-616-649-CLUB. Yay! We've got that down pat now. We also have email address, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. That is how Bill, who by the way does the Bill Watches Movies podcast, sent our contribution to this week's episode which we really appreciate
3: and uh are we ready to play that rich Uh, we are i will give a quick shout out to to bill though he's doing a santo movie in his latest episode uh santo and the blue demon against the monsters which is a movie i have seen if you love santo movies and you love blue when he teams up with the blue demon and the monsters that's a fun flick Uh, that's a fun flick so i'm looking forward to hearing his unique take on it. Special shout out to Bill on that. Yes, let's turn it over to Bill and hear what he has to say about uh, the outdoor theater, past and present.
4: Hello, Jeff. Hello, Rich. This is your boy, Bill Mize, from the Bill Watches Movies podcast. And I'm putting on my other hat, which is, of course, Cub Reporter for the Classic Horrors Club podcast. As mentioned on the Facebook post for this show... I live about 30 to 45 minutes away from the location of the former outdoor theater drive-in, and I volunteered to break quarantine, and also break boredom, and head over there and see what the heck is going on these days. Before that, I wanted to do some basic research, and it proved to be very interesting. A casual Google search proves that the theater did exist, but on the various sites devoted to the history of drive-ins, there seems to be a bit of a controversy as to where the drive-in actually was. I took as many notes as possible and started searching through old local newspaper archives. I found some advertisements and some press releases in the Clearwater Sun and St. Petersburg Times, and it turns out that it had a bit of an interesting history. Originally, the outdoor theater was called the Palm Drive-In. Now, the Palm Drive-In was opened on December 18, 1953, with Jane Russell in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Tyrone Power in Pony Soldier. It was originally conceived as a blacks-only theater, but that decision proved to be unprofitable. In 1958, it reopened as the Olmerton Drive-In which is weird because it is nowhere near Ulmerton Road, which is a east-west main thoroughfare through Pinellas County. The actual address is north of Olmerton Road. It was soon renamed Outdoor Theater and unfortunately finally closed in 1960. Now looking at aerial photographs of the time, you can see the rows where the cars park and you can see the screen from above. It was pretty much an industrial area, hence the use of the land as a drive-in theater. At this exact moment, it is home to the Kakusha Mobile Home Park because, well, this is Florida. The address for you sleuths who want to plug it into Google Maps is 1654 Clearwater Largo Road, in Largo, Florida 33756 I hope that this has been useful I hope your listeners enjoy it and I just want to ask that you too and all of your listeners please be safe and careful out there in these difficult times as always thank you my friends for your kindness and support of my show and I wish you all the best take care
2: wow what perfect timing i see the drive-in right ahead uh there's a couple cars in front of us so that's that's good we're gonna have a decent crowd let's uh, pull in get our spot and then uh, we'll be back
0: Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Did you fail to dress up for tonight's show? No tie, an old shirt and slacks, a house dress? (laughs) Well, don't give it a thought. We're glad you came as you are. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. Don't forget to visit our refreshment center during the intermission or any time. You love the tasty array of snacks we have to offer. So will the youngsters. Everything is quality and mm, so good. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. Bring the family. Bring your friends. There are always wonderful new pictures to see. Delightful snacks to nibble. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Don't drive over 10 miles an hour in the theater area for your safety's sake. And mom or pop... Go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Come back soon. Junior, he's
1: always hungry. As for Sis, she's hungry too. Our barbecue is prepared with just the right amount of heat to keep in the natural juices and hold in that wonderful flavor. Aren't they delicious? Boy, does Junior go for them, and Sis likes them too. So come on, boys and gals, let's have a barbecue. Drive away your worries and cares at this drive-in theater, where you will see the finest motion pictures of all time soon to be released. Drama, comedy, adventure, excitement, something for everyone. Here's a brief glimpse of some of the truly fine pictures we've scheduled in the near future. Callan's been killed. Doc Helen, What happened? It's over at his place. You gotta come now. Oh, wait a minute, Steve. Tell us what happened. Well, I'm trying to tell you. Now, this thing had killed the Doc. Well, what was it? Stop with it, kid. Well, it's kind of like a... It's kind of like a mass that keeps getting bigger and bigger. It... Every one of you watching this screen, look out. Because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater. Teenagers see it first, like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close! Hey, come on. I want to see if I can find it. An old man finds it, touches it, and this is the shocking result. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. It's indestructible, it's indescribable, nothing can stop it. This town is in danger. How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city, before long the nation, and then the world could fall before
0: the blood-curdling threat of the mob. Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people.
2: Well, that was The Blob, Richard. The credits are rolling. I guess there aren't really credits at the end of movies in this era. The credits were all at the beginning. But for those one or two people out there who probably haven't seen The Blob, can you summarize it for us? Give us
3: a little synopsis. I can. You know, uh, The Blob, it it starts off on a meteorite, crashes near a small rural Pennsylvania town, and there is an organism within the meteorite, and it hatches. And it consumes its, its first victim, who is this old farmer. And it just continues to consume victims. It continues to grow. Big enough at one point to cover the town diner. And as the movie progresses, nobody believes 28-year-old teenager Steve Andrews <laughs> by Steve McQueen um, until the audience of the, the Midnight Spook show they come running and screaming out of the, the theater, which, of course, you know, is a, is a classic moment in, in cinema history, really. Of course, the blob, it, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides. It's the blob. I wanted to sing that, you know. I did. It was in my head. I was hearing the, the pops of the music.
2: That's a, a great way to start. And that's the first thing. Let's talk about what is the blob. And one of the things I, I like about the movie are that they they're not sure what it is either. And some of the, the ways they try to describe it, I, I think, are interesting. I noted some of those. At first, when it does get the, the old man on his arm, and they say it's like a big blister on his fingers. It's gotten bigger. Later, for a more technical or medical explanation, they say it's a parasite assimilating him at astonishing speed. Soon after that, there's a nurse and a doctor in the office. The blob attacks and the nurse says, doctor, nothing will stop it. Not sure how she knows that because they haven't really (laughs) tried anything, but uh, that's what she says. And then finally, another description is it's kind of a mass that just keeps getting bigger. So they don't really
3: know what it is. When you said it's kind of like a mass that keeps getting bigger, I (laughs) I immediately chuckled because the acid that they used, and I can't remember the name of the acid. But it, it's an acid that at the time was used to combat genital warts. <laughs> and so that's immediately sent me down a dark path with That you know, with your comment. Yeah, you know, the, the early images, uh, you, you know, you got to say, first off, okay, so the, the farmer, the, you would think, well, he goes down, he starts poking this meteorite with a rock. In his defense, he gets this glob on, on the stick. And as soon as it starts to slide down towards his hand, he does turn the stick over. But then by that point, the the glob does what you wouldn't expect it to do. It then continues to go back up and then consume his hand very quickly. I've seen enough movies that I probably wouldn't go poking around rocks that had just fallen from outer space. That never ends well. But in the old man's defense, he wasn't doing anything real, real... Careless, he was. It, the blob was already right out of the the egg or the meteorite. I mean, it was ready to start consuming. So it was already very active. And then, as it continues to grow, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and out of control. Early shots of the blob aren't as con- And once it gets off the hand and before it starts to get really big, there's that medium area where the blob is just kind of this blob on the floor. I think that's probably the least effective scenes because all that was at that point was a weather balloon. It kind of looked like that. It did. There was a few scenes where it just kind of looked like, yeah, that's just a bag. But then once they start doing the, the actual special effects sequences using the actual Silicon version of the blob, then it starts becoming a lot more convincing. And then of course you're, you're dealing with a lot of miniatures and, and, you know, special effects shots that middle ground though, the blob wasn't quite as frightening. I think when it was in the doctor's office, I mean, don't get me wrong. If I walked into a room and there's a big blob on the ground, I probably wouldn't be as calm as they were. But when you look at it, I don't think it was as convincing as it was when it was initially coming out of the meteorite or later on as it begins to consume the town. I had made a note about, they used to several different methods of special effects.
2: I, I think there's even a painting at one time, isn't it? When it's covering the diner, isn't that a, I think so. like a yeah, yeah, something? I think most of the time they're effective. I don't know, the, the blob is just a weird thing. I know they intended to, as it grew and ate more people, it became more red. I read about that more than I ever really noticed that in the movie. To me it's just kind of inconsistently colored in different scenes. I think that was their idea that as it, you know, ate more people because of the blood it got more red. I don't know that I think the blob is scary. I mean, the thought of it, you know, being swallowed in a blob and basically I guess being digested or disintegrated or something. I mean, that's scary, but I'm going to probably all through this kind of compare it a little bit to the 80s version which I really, really like. My question is, do you need to see a graphic death really to register how deadly the blob is? Uh, I mean, even though it's eating people here in the original, I don't know how scary that is. It, if you saw it digesting or you saw someone being sucked in and waving his arms, and is that scarier? Probably,
3: yeah. I, I mean, I don't think you need to see it. And I'm trying to think now, I know that the the... 80s remake is similar yet quite a bit different in in some ways. It's been, I saw that when it came out. I have not seen it recently. Um, So it's been decades since I've seen it. You know, I think this is a movie that because it was shot in color greatly enhances the film. I think that was a a wise choice. And I want to say the color is fantastic. You watched on Criterion, right? I watched the Criterion DVD version. Um, You have the you have the blu-ray blu-ray. Yeah. But it's just, is the color is very
2: vibrant and it's beautiful.
3: And that's a a comment I'll have when we talk about uh, the second film, the second movie being in black and white, I married a monster from outer space. There's a part of that that I would have loved to seen in color, but yet there's other parts of that, that I love the fact that it's black and white. I don't know that color would have enhanced all of that movie the Blob is a film in which I'm trying to visualize it. If it was in black and white, would it have been the same? And I don't know. I mean, you, that color of the blob, I don't know. Would it have come across as good in a black and white film? I almost feel like it would have, might have changed the tone a little bit. I definitely think it would have. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the creation, it's a, a mix of red dye and silicon was, was basic, but yet, ingenious, and it was something that, that absolutely worked. They did a lot of things with uh, miniatures, and, and uh, they did some, some uh, you know, prospection shots that you and I were talking before we started recording again that hurt the experience a little bit for me. It had been a long time since I'd seen The Blob. Uh, decades, honestly. I think I got the DVD when it came out, and I haven't watched it since. So probably close to... 15, 20 years since I'd seen The Blob. And watching, there's not a lot of extras on the DVD. Uh, In fact, for a Criterion release, it's really kind of shocking that they have virtually nothing on there. And what you do get is very early DVD, kind of just pictures and text. But they do throw some information out there about the, the prospection shots that they did. For example, when they're going into the old man's cabin, that actually the faraway shot where they're walking towards the cabin, actually the cabin is just a miniature. The actual set was, was not a whole cabin. It was just the front part of it, which you can, you know, once they're by the front door of the cabin, you can see they're not, you don't see the rest of the cabin. You just see the front door. And when you're looking at that shot when they're walking towards the cabin and you know that it's a, a, a perspection shot, you can kind of see that. That there's right just at the very end, before they break away to a close up, it was like they were they almost walked a a step or two too far, and it was really starting to look like oh that's not really yeah. Then the scene changes. I feel like if they would have shaved off maybe two or three seconds, the illusion would have been maintained a little bit better. Um, There's a scene in the diner where the blob is coming around the bar stool and the bar stool is distorted almost uh, when you see that scene. And again, you wouldn't notice it if, unless you weren't looking for it, but once once I knew that that, that was a, a shot that they weren't happy with, yeah, it's pretty blatant that it just kind of stands out. I was like, well, yeah, the the, the stool is at a, at a weird angle and it shouldn't be that way the way you're looking at the blob coming around the corner. And then there's a scene in the basement. They're looking out the basement window and the blob is on the outside. There's a, uh, a can of, of condensed milk that it's wrong because the, the, the size is, is either this is like, you know, like a huge massive multi-gallon size thing of condensed milk. Or you know the, the window is really really small. Well, yeah, you you were looking at a miniature set, and so that was something that I kind of surprised, got past the edit. It was like, you know, why? You know, what were they thinking when they did that? And those are things that you wouldn't really notice unless you start learning about the production side of it. That's one of those things where I wish I would have read that after the fact because knowing that stuff beforehand, I was looking for it. When I saw those, it pulled me out of the moment. Classic case of almost knowing too much about the making of a movie before you watch it. And when, really, this wasn't the first time viewing for me, but it because it had been so long, it almost was, because I didn't really remember big chunks of this film. And that's and, interesting, I,
2: I did not know that, and I didn't notice any of those things.
4: Yeah, uh, that's I, the thing, I, I was really
3: interested
2: yeah. by that forced perspective thing, because we both watched Exorcist Three last week on joe bob and that hallway scene that is so effective yes. i read that that used that same por- force perspective that hallway was not nearly no. as long but the doors that were further away in the hallway were actually just smaller And that, that really worked, worked. I mean, I, yeah i i wouldn't that I stuff wouldn't works on me i mean i know it's optical illusions with the eyes and how fast it interacts with yeah. your brain or something but that's you don't
3: think about that's that kind of thing I think that perspective worked Even when you know that it's there and you go back and it's like, no, no, I don't see it. That's where I think I'd be curious if you go back and watch the blob and look for those particular scenes, see if if you're seeing what I'm seeing. Now that you know that it's there, if it changes your, your perspective of the scene, you know, how, how you see it. It fascinates
2: me that they do that. I mean, I guess it's because of space. Maybe they're doing it on a set or something, but it just seems like so much effort to go through when if they just went to a real hallway, you know, but maybe on camera, it's not captured that way. Maybe you don't get the
3: actual, maybe it's not a real perspective that you can get. Well, and think of the time too, though. I mean, people were seeing this on a big screen, not as sharp as images we're seeing now, of course, because that's the thing we're seeing movies, in high definition, Blu-ray, what have you. And they're looking sharper than what they would have even back in the day. And we're seeing them in our home and we're re-watching scenes and we're analyzing scenes. They didn't do that in 1958. You're in a movie theater and you don't even really understand. You know, most people weren't even going to understand the idea of a forced perspective shot like that, unless you are a filmmaker or... I mean, how often was that stuff even publicized in magazines and stuff like that? It really wasn't. So you could pull off stunts like that, and people would just either go into the moment or they they wouldn't catch it. Now we overanalyze stuff, and we see things and pull things out that 1958-59 audiences wouldn't have. Did you learn anything else on the scant uh, extra features? I didn't learn, and there's, let's talk about the blob since we're, we're talking about the actual blob itself. This I already knew, um, and some of this information to get some of the specifics. The blob still exists today in, in, in 2020, or at least it did as of 2018, which I believe is the last time anybody has seen it. It was uh, owned by Wes Shank. Um, he was a collector of, of film memorabilia and the blob in particular, the blob did not dry out. It was still kept in its original five-gallon pail that was shipped uh, to the production uh, studio in 1958. And he would take it to conventions, and he would—he had gone to Monster Bash before, and the pail was on display, and you could touch the blob. I mean, which is kind of you know mind-boggling that you know people were just sit, being able to sit there and touch the blob. Uh, but that was the thing. He—he he felt like something like that should be seen and appreciated by the fans. He was uh, a regular part of the blob fest in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, where part of the film was shot. Phoenixville, Pennsylvania is home to the colonial theater that we see in the movie. It is still there, which is amazing when so many other theaters have since closed and, and been torn down. It is still up and running. It is still a, a functioning movie theater and Part of their, their annual Blobfest is they play the blob multiple times and they do a recreation of the townspeople running out of the theater. And that is something I would love to attend uh, at some point. I think that would be I'd be fun to attend Blob Fest. I've been to the theater, but I have not been to Blobfest. They, uh, obviously, in 2020, uh, I wondered if they were going to be doing it, and no, they're not, not a surprise. I think pretty much every major event over the summer has been canceled, but they're doing a virtual, They as they call it, the home edition of Blobfest, which kind of interests me, because I kind of want to know more about it. It's happening July 10th and 11th. They're going to be doing online screenings of the Blob, as well as other films, and they're still selling Blobfest t-shirts and, and doing things. They're just going to be doing a virtual edition of it. So obviously, I don't know how you're going to virtually run out of the movie theater, but at least they're going to be doing something to to keep it going and said, you know what, we'll be back next year when we can all kind of get back together again, uh, which we are all hoping that by the summer of 2021, we're back to some semblance of whatever the new normal is. West Shank, Unfortunately, passed away on uh, August tenth, twenty eighteen, at the age of seventy two, rather suddenly. I believe. I believe that's the last point that that the 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 blob was seen publicly. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it hasn't been seen since then. Um, it's obviously in the possession of the family. What they have decided to do with it, where it ends up, if it's going to go back on display, if it's going to be sold to somebody. I haven't heard anything about that. Have you? No. I would hope that the family decides to do something with it to, to keep it alive and, and to uh, well, not the blob alive, but to, to keep it out there. Um, you know, I can't imagine that the, the family will, will hit all the conventions like Wes Shank did. I think that was his, his thing, but maybe it goes on display there at the colonial theater, you know, which I think would be fitting. Um, sell it to the movie theater, come up with some type of thing where it can be on display. Probably not where people can touch it, but at least be on display. People can see it uh, or, you know, have it where it comes out, obviously for events uh, that are close to the area, like Monster Bash or something. I don't know. I'd like to see see them be able to continue to do that. I'd, I'd hate for it to just end up in some private collector's stash that ends up in his basement and the world doesn't get a chance to see uh, I'd like it to to be out there for people like you and me to be able at some point be able to see it.
2: Let's so talk
3: about the cast,
2: yes,
3: the cast.
2: I am not Three a year big,
3: old teenager Steve McQueen.
2: Yeah, and I I don't know if you made any notes about him. I I am not particularly a Steve McQueen fan. I don't know a, a lot about him or his history. So before I make my comments, do you have any of that that you researched well, or? I, I can't say that I'm a Steve
3: McQueen fan. Have I seen movies with him in it? Yes. The Great Escape, of course, uh, Bullet, The Sand Pebbles, which I think was just on Turner Classic Movies the other day in honor of Memorial Day. Um, I've seen episodes of his Western Wanted Dead or Alive. You know, Steve McQueen died decades ago. He died in 1980 at the age of 50 of a heart attack. He died at a young age. He had, I think his last movie came out that very year. I, I'm not drawn to Steve McQueen. You know, I don't want to say that. You know, he's not a good actor. I think he is. He was just never anybody that really overly appealed to me. So, I mean, I've seen The Great Escape. Would I want to see it again? I have to say no. There are some war movies that I I, will, I would gladly sit down and revisit: Dirty Dozen or Kelly's Heroes. I mean, for that era, you know. I'm just thinking specifically: A Great Escape. For some reason, no. You know, I don't honestly think I've seen The Sand Pebbles. I kind of wish honestly that I would have recorded it off Turner Classic the other day just so I could see it. I'm kind of curious, especially after seeing the blob again. That said, I've never been a huge, a huge fan of Steve McQueen's. I acknowledge that he's he's a he's got a following. and just I wasn't part of that following.
2: Yeah, he supposedly was a bit of trouble on the set, difficult to get along with. There was an interesting story I ran across about how he was constantly smoking. I mean, even on the set and there's a scene in the movie, they're outside and supposedly see smoke coming up behind him. And that's because he's holding a cigarette behind his back. But I know what scene they were talking about because they were outside and I saw that and I thought, wow, it must be cold. That's, you know, steam coming out of his mouth. Yeah. But then I read that, no, that was a cigarette. So I remember that scene now that you mentioned it. Yeah. So he was 28 years old playing a teenager. And, uh, I have some issues with that, but all of the kids are older. So, you know, it's something you just kind of accept, and you see that in a lot of movies. But in his performance, I think he overcompensates to act younger. I mean, he really puts that, oh, golly gee whiz kid into it, and it's kind of unusual coming from someone who's obviously not that age. It makes him seem a little simple, maybe and he's not, he's the hero. He's a, you know, he's a good guy. Well, and that's the other thing too. He's like a squeaky clean kid. And this was during an era where if a a kid told his parent, dad, you know me, I don't lie. The dad believes him and the whole town believes him. I mean, this was a much more innocent time. So maybe that's just foreign to me, but there's something just not quite right about completely believable about his performance. And I know that's probably sacrilege to fans of the movie and to Steve McQueen. He, though, is a brilliant thespian compared to Jane in the movie, Anita Corso. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I think that's how uh, you, yeah. What a plain, uh, pun intended, plain Jane she is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lot. However, the, she has one redeeming moment, and that is when, you know, they're in the pressure cooker, and it's just about to his breaking point. And this one cop, Sergeant Jim Burt, that has a chip on his shoulder about these kids for something, you know, accuses Steve of pulling a prank. You're trying to make us look silly. And she just spouts out, you're doing a good job of that yourself. That's like her one moment where she gets out of her shell and meek little
3: bland Jane, you know, says what she's thinking. I think that was her as an actress because of course her big claim to fame is playing on the Andy Griffith show.
2: okay.
3: I knew that name was familiar. Yeah, she she played uh, she played Helen. She played okay. Andy's eventual wife. When you watch the Andy Griffith show and you watch the early, like I think it's the first two seasons, Andy has two girlfriends that, early on. That Andy. <laughs> well, he has Eleanor Donahue plays his girlfriend. I think it's in the first season, and which I always liked her as an actress, and then. I forget the actress who played it, and I think maybe it was the second season, briefly. And then she disappears, and then I think they'd already introduced Helen as as Opie's teacher, and then decided that needs to be his girlfriend. Uh, And then they eventually get married, actually, and even have a kid. When you watch those early seasons of Andy Griffith, I I love the early seasons with Don Knott's the best, and I love really the first couple seasons, because Andy just he just kind of goes, oh, you know, he just goes that that Southern boy. And I like seeing him with those other, other girls in the Andy Griffith show. And Helen was always, to me, just kind of a plain Jane. And I just, I'm sure that we have Andy Griffith fans out there that are like, what are you talking about? For me, I felt some of the other actresses, especially the one, I wish I knew her name, there was a lot of chemistry. And I know that there's got to be some, behind the scenes reason as to why she just disappeared and without so much as a buyer your leave. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, Helen and Andy. I just, I was never really impressed with her on the Andy Griffith show. She was born in Hutchinson, Kansas, mm. which I think is interesting. Um, and she did die at a fairly young age. She died in 95, um, at the age of, uh, 62 of cancer.
2: Oh, I got confused. You said it. At a young age, and then you said 95. And I, oh,
3: sorry, (laughs) I said, What (laughs) age of 62? And that's a young age. What's an old age? I think she was in the return to Mayberry reunion, which I think happened in the late 80s. So she did make it to that point. I I thought it was really funny in that opening scene, right, where we we get introduced and they're in the car, and she's just like, She's, I mean, she is like prude to the next level, you know. And then just like, oh, you bring all the girls up here and stuff. I don't know. I think I think you could have gotten a better actress. It would have made that a bit more believable for me. I, On one I,
2: hand, I wonder what he saw in her, his character. But then again, maybe that's just a reflection of his squeaky clean, you know, that he'd go for the yeah and not.
3: I think the, the, the thought was, oh, he's he's, he's he's kind of this bad boy. Maybe he's done some stuff in the reality. No, he's just a squeaky clean kid. I think the fact, again, that he's older makes you think that he's, you know, because you see this in other movies, right, where there's the the older guy who's kind of hung on a little bit longer and he hangs out with the teenagers. Isn't that like in the, the giant Gila monster? He's a little bit older. He's not really, because he's working already and, and he's got responsibilities for his sister, but yet he still kind of hangs out with the, the teenage crowd. And I, you get that feel for this, but in fact, he's, He's not older. He's still part of the crowd. But it's almost because he's that squeaky clean character is that he he almost has an older mentality about him because he is more responsible. You got anything else on the cast and crew? Not a whole lot. I mean, you've got good cop bad cop. You've got uh, Lieutenant Dave is the good cop played by Earl Rowe. I didn't find much on him. He didn't do a lot of acting. Uh, John Benson played bad cop Sergeant Burt, who seemingly just <laughs> Hates all kids. Olin Howland played the old man. Uh, he he was in them. I can't quite remember his character, but he he did have a little uh, horror cred there. And then uh, Stephen or Stephen Chase played Doctor Hallen, who I thought looked like George Reeves from The Adventures of Superman. He had it. a Clark Kent kind of look to yeah. him. He was in When Worlds Collide in 51, which is a movie I have not seen in a very, very long time. But he wasn't the main character in that. He was supporting as well. You know, you've got a, a cast of, um, and I think even in the credits, don't they introduce them as introducing the the teenagers? Or what was it? How they worded it that in the opening credits, it was kind of like, yeah, it was just teenagers. And then their their names listed. The young teenagers or young. They did something weird in the credits. As far as the cast goes, I guess that's part of the movie's charm, right? Is that you know you, you didn't really have any big big names in in as far as Fifty Eight goes, and you were dealing with some unknown cast of of, of youngsters. Steve McQueen was obviously the, the the best known at that point, even then. That was early on in his career. And I suppose that's part of the charm. Uh, Rich, hang on a second. There must be an incident out
2: on the highway. I hear sirens. Is that your end or my end? That's the drive-in. It's just out on the highway. Don't you hear that going by? I do. I do. All right. They're past, so please continue. Okay. (laughs) Gotta
3: love it. Okay. Yeah, as far as, like, the other crew, uh, I guess just real quick, we know, you've got the Based on an Idea by Irvine H. Milgate. Didn't really find much on him. Uh, There might be some stuff out there. I had a hard time finding anything. Screenplay, screenplay by Kay Lineker and Theodore Simonson. Kay Lineker wanted to call the movie The Molten Meteor, uh, and then it went through, the, it was going to be called The Glob at one point before they finally settled on The Blob. The Molten Meteor kind of has a cool ring to it, but for some reason, I don't think that that would have been, I think it'd get lost in the shuffle with a title like The Blob gives way to the song and then just as part of the, the charm of the film. Uh, now the movie is directed by, um, Irvin S. Yeaworth Jr. This was his, uh, second film. Chris Yeworth, which is his son is a regular attendee at monster bash. Now I have to admit the, the couple of times that we've gone, I've never actually heard a and a with him. I, I don't think you did either. No, uh, but he, he at least is trying to keep the legacy of his father alive. And, and, and obviously, you know, Monster Bash is a, a regular thing for him. I think when you take a look at the kind of behind the camera and such, the big name is who the producer of the film was, and that's Jack Harris. Of course, there's a lot of films that, that immediately uh, come to mind. 4D Man, which is a, a really, I think a, it's a fun flick that a lot of people hate because it's got this crazy, jazzy soundtrack movie called Equinox, which I have never seen. Uh, the movie Schlock, which I know you have seen. looked yes. at that recently. Dark Star. I'm not sure that I've ever seen that. This was his favorite movie, though. He, at one point, Paramount bought the rights to this film, but then he bought them back and ended up pairing the movie with his uh, dinosaur movie Dinosaurus in 64. So that was a a double feature that was going around, which, interesting. I think The Blob and I Married a Monster from Outer Space might go together a little better than The Blob and Dinosaurus, but I don't know, maybe not. Uh, Actually, I, I believe,
2: if I'm correct, The Blob and I Married a Monster from Outer Space were originally a double bill, and The Blob, yes. was it on the bottom?
4: Yeah. And for some yeah.
2: reason, they thought it stood alone, and so they did release them separately, and, and The Blob was a huge hit.
3: Yeah, that actually, The Blob was in the bottom and then they flipped it because more okay. people are going to see The Blob than I Married a Monster from Outer Space. Because the, the title of that movie really gives different ideas than what the movie ends up really kind of putting across, which we'll talk about that in a few. Jack Harris is, is, the, is the big name, I think, that a lot of people remember and is, is well known. And I know he was involved uh, in the remake of The Blob. I don't believe that he was involved in the, uh, the sequel, which I know we're going to talk about here in a moment. The where mm. the blob or son of the blob or whatever. in 72, he was at one point connected with a, another possible remake Rob zombie announced in yeah. 2009. And then nothing came of that. Then Simon West was going to be doing one and, and, Jack Harris was still connected. He was going to be involved as a producer, executive producer. I believe Jack Harris passed away three years ago, 2017, I believe. I haven't heard any buzz on, on a another remake of The Blob. I'm not sure that we need no, one. It still shows in development on IMDb, but there's no details. I, I worry that if they were to do that today, I wonder how much they're going to ramp up the violence and the blood and guts. I think they'd go that path and it would, the, the charm of the movie would be lost amidst a more serious and darker tone, which you know is where they would go with that.
2: Actually, I just looked up to see if there was information. Guess who the star, this is as of 2017, it was in development. The star, Samuel L. Jackson.
3: <laughs> okay. Now, immediately, you get (laughs) some hilarious one-liners. Yes. And when I see the movie, yes, I would, just for that. That might save it, actually. I I hate to say that, because I think Samuel Jackson's a bit overused by Hollywood. But that said, there would probably be some some fun moments in that movie. But yeah, that would be totally different, right? Because you're not dealing with teenagers at that point. Yeah, that'd be funny. I have to admit Give him some fun one-liners, and I, I, can, I can imagine where that would go. I uh, also
2: don't know if it was Harris or if it was the director, but somebody was involved in making religious films. This I came out of that, and it was intended purposely to be lighter. Uh, and actually, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who, one of them, Harris or Yeworth, actually defended this as being in support of teenagers,
3: you know, a positive message about teenagers. Yeah. I think that was Yeworth. Yeah, I think I think that was his why he did the film was because he the positivity of like, listen to the youth of America. They've got something to say. And when when you don't, this is what could happen. We were talking about Steve McQueen, you know, uh, missed opportunity for him on making more money off of this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was uh, he was offered three thousand dollars or 10 percent of the profits. He opted for the three thousand dollars. The movie, you know, it, it at least grossed four million dollars. And at one point, Jack Harris was being interviewed and said the movie had eventually grossed like forty million, which I don't know if you would count that off of like VHS and DVD sales. Maybe that's where he got that bumped up. That's a pretty big jump from four to forty. Nonetheless, Steve could have made a whole lot more money if he went with ten percent of the profits, but. That's a gamble, whenever you do that. Kind of think of Robert Downey Jr. He went with the percentage of the profits. Yes, he, he, <laughs> he came out the best end of that deal by a long shot. So let's talk about the Colonial Theater. The, they were showing a movie there. The, have you ever seen Daughter of Horror or Dementia, which is actually a real film? I have not. I think that I've seen Daughter of Horror many years ago. Dementia was the original film. And then they did, they took elements from that and and redid it as Daughter of Horror with narration by none other than Ed McMahon uh, of Johnny Carson Tonight Show fame. And so, yes, that's, that's actually a snippet of a real film. Now I forget the name of it, but we see a poster for Forbidden Planet and they get a vampire in the robot. (laughs) Okay. That's interesting. I thought that was kind of interesting, though, that they threw out the, this little snippet of a film that I think some people think is a fake film, and no, it's actually a real movie. It's not a well-made movie, but it, it does have a bit of, um, I don't know, mis- you know, mystery about it, because it was one film, and then it was remade, and, or reissued as another film. They threw in some narration. It is kind of a weird, surreal, dream world. It kind of shades of Carnival of Souls, just not as good. I don't think. Mm. What about the music? What can we say about the the song? Well, I, I paused for a moment
2: if I didn't know if you meant the like score of the movie or the song. That's a real
3: earworm. That theme song. It is. It's classic. I had not really done much research on that. That was actually Burt Backrock was was involved in that, and I did not know. Although it amount makes total sense that. It's credited to the five blobs, but it's actually only one man. A uh, Bernie Knee, if that's his real name, uh, and his voice was recorded five times. And I guess when you really hear it, it's like, I guess that kind of makes sense, because I don't hear any other voices other than his. Yeah, it's, it's a classic tune, I think. If I remember correctly, when uh, our friend uh, Christopher Min was making The Giant Spider, he wanted that kind of blob-esque theme song. And of course then you get the giant spider theme, which is so great in that movie. And I think as just part of why the giant spider is still, I think today his biggest film and it's most accessible because it's a giant bug movie. It's so well done. You have the, the giant spider is in red, like in the movie them. And then the, the song, you know, uh, Kind of get you, gotta get you in your ear, kind of like the blob. Uh, what else do you have on the blob? Oh, I just I
2: wanted to close with just sort of my opinion and some thoughts about it. I can go there, and I can pass
3: it off to you then, because it had been so long since I'd seen the blob. I have to say, I, for some reason, probably had put this on a higher pedestal than ultimately when I revisited. It now it's like I enjoyed it, but maybe not as much as I I I thought that I did originally. It was a little slow at times. It's There's times I kind of wanted just the, the plot to move along a little bit quicker. Yeah, they were
2: kind of lackadaisical in uh, doing what they were going to do. There were a lot of side trips, and it's like, come on, we're a little more urgent. Let's go.
3: It took a while for, you know, for everyone else to kind of get on board. It's like, no, the blob is real, you know. And really, it, it, it's even it, it takes the movie theater being attacked before they finally, like, well, Gosh, I, I think there really is a blob, you know. And then of course, it goes straight from there to the the diner, and then the movie kind of wraps up rather quickly. I, it to me, I, it, it was a little slow. Do I in, enjoy the movie? Absolutely, it, it's fun, you know. Is it the the best movie from the fifties? No, I think there's others uh, that are that are better. I think that it's uh, it, it's a fun flick that it's just is plagued by. Some deficiencies, I think the 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 cast a little bit the the slowness of the film. I did love the ending. I thought it was kind of funny that they they've got this blob and they think, well, okay. So spoiler alert: freezing it will stop the blob. So let's just take it to the Arctic, you know? And then it's like, well, yeah, that's good as as long as the Arctic stays cold. And then you get the the end question mark, you know? And of course, as we all know now, <laughs> in twenty twenty. And the Arctic isn't as cold as it once was. and as like it's ripe for if someone was to do a remake, I, I want it to be a sequel. You have to do it that way now. You, you, you have to acknowledge the original and what happened to it and the blob coming to life because and you could do a modern day you know message and, and things like that. I think there's a, a really good potential to, to do something. And don't just go down the path of let's make it as gross and stuff as possible. I think there's a potential to make a good movie with a message considering where they left the blob in 58. Okay. So
2: I agree with you. This is not a particularly good movie. Now don't start the hate mail. I love it. I absolutely love this movie, but it is slow. You do always build it up in your head until you sit down to watch it. And it's not really quite what you thought. However, This, to me, more than any movie of all the movies we've watched, for some reason, my mind matches what I imagine the 1950s to be like. It seems so authentic to me. You made a comment earlier, uh, not to jump the gun, but that our second movie seems a little more polished. But I think this, the, the blob I think it might feel a little more authentic because it is unpolished. But I mean, you take everything from, you know, the clothes, the hair, the cars, the attitude, and I guess it's a stereotypical attitude of what we think the 50s is like, but it, that it is it's a time when doctors work from their homes, they did house calls, you know, they've got informational signs hanging up about polio in their living rooms, the, the midnight spook show, the tickets for that, by the way, were 80 cents the grocery store where Steve's dad owns a grocery store. They could get watermelons for four cents a pound. And, you know, the really the biggest threat to this idyllic town is some kids racing backwards on the street. Yeah. I mean, this is just an ideal. To me, it's a snapshot of what I think the 50s is and that it, it affects me in, no, in a way that other movies do not. It, it Nostalgia, maybe, even though I wasn't there in the 50s, it just... It really affects me in that way. So I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent because we mentioned the sequel. A lot of sequels you think, why did we really need that? Then you stop to think, like in the case of The Blob, okay, it's been 30 years. 58 for the original, the sequel in 88. If you watch that 88 now, it is very much a snapshot of the 80s, just like this was a snapshot of the 50s. Yeah, it's gorier. Yeah, the hair's bigger and there's shoulder pads, you know, but that's a snapshot of that time. So based on what you said about the Arctic melting, this is, I think, a perfect time for a sequel, remake slash sequel. And it's got to be a reflection of this time. And I think it's a perfect time because there is so much going on. And I I think it's time to take that snapshot. And if they could somehow recreate the same type of story, but make it all about 2020, I think that would really be awesome. And so, you know, Samuel L. Jackson or not, I really hope someone develops it because it's been another 30 years. It's been 32 years. It's time. Let's see what filmmakers would do with that concept. Now, 60 years later
3: from the original. I'm all for it. That's that my little tangent point. slash rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's an excellent point, and I think I think you're spot on. Now, you saw Beware of the Blob, or Son of Blob. Sadly, I did, yes. I know when you look at the cast of that, the two names that immediately scream out at me are Larry Hagman and Dick Van Patten, and automatically my mind goes to where a movie featuring those two actors would go i love larry hagman as jr other than that i think of him as you know i dream a genie and i just don't visualize him and then i look at he plays a young hobo or something and i'm like okay I, yeah don't what, what are your comments on that movie real quick
2: yeah don't let the names in the cast fool you i mean larry hagman dick van patten sid haig burgess meredith carol lindley cameos at best Larry Hagman is in one scene as that, the hobo, as you said. The main leads are, are I'm sorry, no offense, but nobody's, at least I don't know who they are. And, and they're not very good. Real quick, the story of how I think this got made was, uh, oh gosh, I don't, know, I don't know how I actually started, but Larry Hagman lived in a beach house and he had never seen The Blob and someone was working on developing a sequel. And so he watched The Blob and then he wanted to do it. He'd participate, but he had to direct it. I think it's the only thing he ever directed, if I'm not mistaken. I, mean, I think he directed episodes of I Dream of Genie, maybe Dallas. Anyway, this was his only movie. So he, they made the deal. He got to do it. This was like friends coming over for the weekend and making a movie. They pretty much ignored the script, improvised most of it, and it is about the most unfunny thing I've ever seen. It's They're awful trying to make you know, infuse it with a sense of humor. And it, it to me, it just does not work. You know, their kind of sense of humor, and it's a recurring thing, because it happens everywhere, is spilled drinks, glasses of beer breaking. That's how they discover at the end that cold will stop the blob because a case of beer spills over, the bottles break, and there's ice that touches the edge of the blob. So that that's the sense of their sense of humor. I will say, though, it's not bad. I think the special effects are decent. They're a little more consistent than they were in the original blob. And a lot of times it's more of like the blob more kind of rolls over people versus, you know, suck them into it. But there's some decent parts to it. It suffers. If you thought the blob was slow, this is way slower. And just at the point when it should be exciting, you know, it grounds to a halt. It's just, very very I hate to say poorly made but maybe poorly edited and it's just not good that is my opinion
3: okay I, you know I'm still curious of the movie I, I there's I, I I might find time to, to sit down and and, and and to finally check it out you do make me want to revisit the 88 movie though it's probably been since 80 probably nine 89 90 since I've seen it I didn't see it when it right came out, but it's been, it was a rental, I think. Uh, or maybe it was on one of the movie channels. So early 90s at best. Makes me it worry. is
2: gory, and you, you mentioned, you know, not wanting gore in a new one. But again, think of it as a snapshot of the 80s. That's what movies were like at that time. Well, yes. Yeah. So,
4: yeah.
3: you know, so I, I think you'd have to kind of, I'm not against gory movies. It's I'm against gore for the sake of gore. I mean, there's got to be some some logic behind it. Now, if you're dealing with the blob, I could go with gore as long as it wasn't, they weren't doing it excessively just for the sake of it.
2: I I love talking about the blob, even though it might not
3: be the best movie. I, I, you know, I enjoyed it. Let's not have anyone get onto us and say, but you guys didn't like the movie. It's like, no, we absolutely did enjoy it. For me, because we have a double feature, I was immediately comparing this to another movie made the same year which is our next movie I married a monster from outer space a movie that in my opinion doesn't get enough love and i think the title immediately puts people in this mindset of what the movie is like and it's actually deserves a better title and i think people more people would actually appreciate it and i think when you even if you look at like the dvd cover it's it's not that great of a dvd cover it's it's got uh, the character of, of marge played by gloria talbot in front and center in like a wedding gown or something and it's just like ah it's 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 not yes marriage plays a part in the film but it's a it's it's a film that deserves a lot more love so mike i'm comparing the blob to that movie because these are the two movies yeah that uh that we're seeing well you know
2: what i need to step up oh back to the concession stand go around the back and use the restroom not they have a restroom. I'm not going to use it at, at the back of the concession stand. But I'm going to grab something on the way back. Would you like anything from the concession
3: stand? I, I would. I, I would like, uh, I'd like a Coke and I'd like uh, a hot dog and uh, a box of snow caps. All right. No barbecue
2: ribs. I'm going to pass on the barbecue ribs. All right. And the intermission is still going on here. So we'll just listen to that for a minute and, and then be back for our second
3: movie. Sounds good. Well, hang on a second. We just got a voicemail from Steve and Ben Turk from the Diecast Movie Review podcast. And uh, hey, there we go. They want to talk about The Blob and they want to talk about Beware the Blob or Son of Blob. So let's hear what they have to say.
5: Hi, Rich. Hi, Jeff. This is Steve and Ben. And we're sending you some feedback for one of the movies that you're covering today, The Blob, and another one, Beware the Blob, mainly because we didn't have the other movie you guys are covering. And I hope you guys enjoyed the feedback. Ben's going to give his feedback on the Blob, and then I'll talk about Beware the Blob because I could not bring myself to subject Ben to watch but Beware the Blob prior to my first viewing.
6: Okay, so the Blob is one of my favorite giant monster films, partially due to the fact that it has a non-traditional giant monster, not being like just a bigger spider or a, a bigger lizard, as a lot of films use. It uses. Uh, A kind of a shapeless goo that seems to have a very mindful way of moving. So it's not just mindlessly building up and spreading all over the place, but it's actually oozing and jumping and sliding after people. And it grows bigger and bigger the more people it consumes to uh, extraordinary size. And uh, there are several reasons that I enjoyed the blob. One of them was for the very impactful deaths of characters such as the nurse earlier on in the film and later on my favorite death of the whole film is the mechanic who while partially underneath a car working on it you just have this little scene where you think it's got him and then he comes out from under the car and talks to somebody passing by and then goes back under the car and then nothing seems to be happening. And all of a sudden his legs just start spasming out from under the car and then go still. And without seeing anything happening to him, you know, the blob got him. And, uh, I think that's my main points about the blob. A lot of what I really enjoyed. Uh, I'll kick it over to dad for beware of the blob.
5: Thanks, man. Um, Wearing the blob was kind of interesting. I've never seen the film before. And it showed up at our house in a brown box with no labeling except something looked like it might have been from Kansas. And I'm starting to think, did Rich Chamberlain send me this movie as a dare to watch, just like he did with The Island of Dr. Monroe, the Richard Stanley, well, actually, it wasn't Richard Stanley when he started, but the Marlon Brando, Val Kilmer epic film that he had me watch for episodes long ago and I was like dang it Rich I'll take that challenge I'll watch Beware the Blob for you but I'm wondering if it wasn't from you Rich was it from Jeff or somebody else does make me a little scared Uh, let's see Beware the Blob directed by Larry Hagman and had stars a bunch of people that um, obviously you love your Star Trek references, Robert Walker, who, if I remember, right, played Charlie uh, seven in the episode of Star Trek. So I know at least one Star Trek reference, but I, I just want to bring up, you guys never talk about Ray Harryhausen references. And of course we have Burgess Meredith and a cameo in this, and that's, you know, the tie-in I'll use for Ray Harryhausen. Maybe I'll try to do that every time I leave you feedback. I'll try to find a way to tie in a Harryhausen film. Um, let's see the movie. I came into this movie with the lowest of expectations of almost any movie I'd seen besides the Island of Dr. Moreau, which I already mentioned. I mean, I came in with, with expecting it to be God awful. And I got to honestly say it was not God awful. It was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Now this could be because my expectations were so low. They were in the negative range. I don't know. But um, there are some things that didn't work for me. In the beginning, they were showing the opening credits and you see a cat, a kitten playing in the field and the music, uh, I'm sorry, if you're, if you're setting up for a horror comedy, I don't know what they were going for with the kitten playing with the music they were playing at that time. It was uh, not what I was expecting. I'll put it that way. And then it gets into the movie itself, and basically, it's the same kind of plot as the Blob, where you have—I think this case—I don't think they're teenagers, but college students that realize what's going on, and they're trying to tell the sheriff, and the sheriff doesn't believe them as to what's happening. Though I will say, he's not as dismissive as the sheriff was in the um, the Blob movie, or the police were in the Blob movie. These these law enforcement were a little more accepting, at least the sheriff was. And it goes into the same kind of plot where they were going around trying to warn people and so on. But otherwise, all the deaths, oh my lord, lots and lots of deaths. I mean, the death toll, I think, is much way, that we see, is way higher than in the blob. And um, so I got to give it kudos for that. Um, having said that the blob itself was very underwhelming in its special effects, but they had a very small budget. So I guess that's to be understood. There were a couple of nice effects with the blob when the blob was completely surround um, on top and around one of the vehicles and starting to ooze in through the vents, the lighting that they had going on from outside, um, showing that the blob was on the car. I thought that was pretty good. So I got to give credit for some of the, um, the lighting and the cinematography, that they were doing. The death toll I said was a lot for humans, but also I think this was the one movie I saw where the most non-humans that I think on film are killed. I mean, it starts off with like a fly, a kitten, a dog, way more chickens dying than You'd ever would think horses though, not seen. It's kind of implied. I mean, it is, there, there is a lot of death. So if you are an animal lover, this is not the movie for you. Um, so Rich, your wife Carla would not want to watch Beware the Blob. Don't let her watch this movie because of what you said before, she does not like animal death. Um, so as to whether I recommend this film or not, if you know what you're getting into with Beware the Blob, I would say yes, I would recommend it. You know, it's 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 got humor in it. It's got enough going for it with the different skits of the deaths that are going on that you will find enjoyment of it if you are do not know what you're getting into. You better be probably drunk in order to watch this thing and enjoy it because it is bizarre. And as for the first movie you guys did, The Blob. Um, personally, I love The Blob. Ben talked about it earlier, and I and if I agree with him. I highly recommend that, which I'm sure you guys both did also. All right, so that's feedback from Ben and Steve from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. And I hope you guys have a great day. And I've still love listening to your stuff. You guys keep doing a good job. Thanks. Bye.
3: Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Ben, for calling in with your thoughts. I love to hear from you guys. So yeah, beware the blob. Actually, I had a chance to see this. And yes, Carla did watch it with me. And she didn't have as much of a problem with it as I thought she would. The animal violence wasn't as intense. There was certainly a higher body count. There is a crazy cast between Burgess Meredith and Larry Hagman and a lot of other familiar faces. I've actually done a little bit of research on this, and uh, hey, here's a shameless plug. My thoughts on the movie will actually be on the Mimiverse AudioCast July edition. I recorded it for June, but uh, Mr. Mim is going to hold it over, so you'll be able to hear my thoughts on the July edition of that podcast. And, uh, yeah, again, thank you, Steve and Ben, for calling in with your thoughts. Let's get to the intermission.
1: We are about to witness the takeoff of the first manned rocket to outer space. We pick up the count. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We're off to visit the planets. There are treats, the on in the stars.
4: Venus is loaded with candy. And ice
1: cream is found upon Mars. The soda pop's and on Saturn. When you're thirsty, it sure hits the spot. And Jupiter's really jumping The pop on this butter and pop. But the best of them all is the planet. Where all of these treats are at hang. And that is the spot we now head for. Our theater refreshments. Do- dog days, hot dog days, that is, somehow have a way of turning out to be fun days. The pop and sizzle of the juicy meat seems to say... Come and get me. I'm done to a turn. Yep, hungry or not, it's hard to resist the tantalizing aroma and taste appeal of a sizzling hot dog. The nice part of it is, there's one waiting for you right now at the refreshment
2: stand. And now, on with the show.
3: How are your snowcaps, Richard? Ah, you gotta love them, you know. Snowcaps... Not really a big thing in 2020, but in 59, still one of the top candies. You got to love it. Goobers, Chuckles, you got to love the prices too. Coke was only five cents, right? You know, hot dogs are less than a dollar. Movie ticket, 65 cents. You got to love these prices. And it was only 30 cents a gallon for gas to get here. Yeah. Got to love it. Yeah. I had myself a Dr. Pepper. You always got to have Dr. Pepper. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You got to love the concession stand. Best part of the drive-in theater besides the in intermission ads, which I think they're wrapping up. Oh, yep. Looks like it's going to start.
1: innocent girl on her honeymoon, her passionate dreams of perfect romance turned into a living nightmare. For this sweetheart she married, the man she had loved, was merely the hollow shell for the invaders from outer space. Bill! Who would believe her? Who could help her through the flesh-crawling terror of this unearthly marriage? when anyone she turned to could be one of them? Could she touch the body of this masquerading alien who wanted to learn the secrets of human love? Your race has no women. It can't have children. It will die out. Eventually, we'll have children with you. What kind of children? All kind. Was it true? Could space monsters mate with Earth women? See the startling answer in the shocker of them all. Ah!
2: Uh, I really like that one, Richard. Uh, how would you summarize it? Put it into some elegant words for us.
3: Okay, so you've got the character of Bill Farrell. It's the eve of his wedding, and uh, he, he's driving after the bachelor party and kind of sees a body on the road, and he gets out of his car, and the body's not there. But there's an alien, and uh, or we assume it is, right? Because we see this glow and he gets kind of consumed by this weird smoke mixture and he disappears. Well, he's been touched by an alien and he ends up showing up the next day. He's late to the wedding and his uh, bride-to-be Marge is just all out of sorts. But the wedding goes off. But unfortunately, the wedding isn't quite what she anticipated. Her honeymoon night is a little different. And we eventually see that Marge is writing her mother to say that Bill isn't the man she fell in love with. As soon, of course, she, she begins to see all sorts of things that kind of makes her wonder if Bill really is the man she married uh, or fell in love with. And she starts trying to tell the townspeople what's going on. Nobody believes her. But yes, the town is being invaded by space monsters. The whole thing though is, you know, could it be that Bill's not the only man in town that's no longer human and is he really, is he a bad alien? I don't know. I think that's that's kind of the fun of the movie is that as we see Bill and his relationship with Marge, the alien version of Bill, he begins to kind of fall in love with her. He, there's an affection of sorts that he's having and we're seeing different aspects because of course along the way his friends b- become aliens as well and they all kind of have a different approach you know one is kind of comfortable with the fact that you know that they're settling into this this new world but not necessarily falling in love with their their spouse like bill is and then you've got another of his friends who just thinks you know humans are just worthless you're gonna getting these different aspects from the from the aliens but we find out more about essentially why they're here and it's because they they need to mate they need to find women their women are, have uh, have perished and now they've come to basically take over earth and repopulate and kind of like the Mars needs women right they they need women to to further their race but it might not be as easy as they think
2: yeah, so a little more details on that. The, they come from the planet in the Andromeda system. Bill eventually explains to Marge, and it is this weird relationship where she knows what he is. I think he probably knows that she knows, and yet they continue living together, and, and that creates some kind of interesting tension. But uh, he explains to her that uh, in this, on this planet, the sun became more intense, and, and the women all died. So she asked him, well, why did you come here? Like you said, it's to mate. And she asked, well, did you love your women before they died? Nope. We came together for breeding purposes only. They're there for one reason. That was the same reason they had back on their
3: planet, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's like they that,
3: that there wasn't the the human connection or the emotional side of it. And I think that's where interesting as the movie progresses, you begin to see that that Bill starts to, to realize that there's more to being human than just having the form. Um, and he begins to see see the advantages um and, and begins to to see the, the positives. And I think that's it, that's a contrast, of course, is that his other aliens and friends are not necessarily on the same same page as he is. Like I said, one has kind of disdain for humanity the other just kind of seems to be more matter of fact and we're you know bill is is developing feelings for marge and and you know kind of towards the end of the movie once she kind of puts things together there's a comment that he makes right about the guest bedroom and he says like what a wonderful concept you know welcoming guests or something you start to feel sympathy for him a little bit yeah he's still he's he's taken the body of the real Bill. And of course we find out what's really happened uh, to the real Bill. And then, you, you know, some sympathy you may have has kind of changed a little bit because there is kind of this insidious plot. But as far as the aliens go, the alien Bill isn't really a bad guy. I mean, you know, he's not a good guy, but he's not like this, you know, he's not necessarily doing anything horrific. He's just, trying to do to keep his race alive. And he's beginning to have doubts along the way as like, is this really the way to do it though?
2: And yeah. that's where you start
3: to get sympathy for him a little bit.
2: Oh yeah. And the ironic thing is at the end, the tables have turned and he tells Marge, you've changed. You're not the same woman I married. Yeah. And that's because as she became, you know, learn more of what he was and she's never even though his feelings may change, she's never like attracted to him and like, Oh, well, we can make this work, you know? So yeah, he yeah. comments that she's changed, uh, in that same interaction that I quoted earlier, he goes on to say when he was telling about how women for breeding purposes, that's why it's taken me so long to understand human desires and emotions. And she asks, are you telling me you're learning how to love? And he says, I'm learning what love is. I, feel like we're putting way too much into it, but it is, it is interesting. I think there's something, yep, it is. Is. and even overall, there's something that kind of taps into the whole thing that like fear of, of marriage and of not marrying the person that you thought you did oh, yeah, and uh, having children, you know, she wants to have children desperately. She's going to the doctor, nothing wrong with her. There's a, there's a lot of real
3: world you yeah. know, stuff that often didn't even get talked about in 58 movies, and that's right there's a, a thought of the kind of what they would do a decade later with with Star Trek my first of two Star Trek references here but what Star Trek was able to do is they were able to take real world scenarios real world topics that wouldn't fly through the sensors of the day. you put a, an alien suit on and you put it in outer space all of a sudden well yeah that's not real world we can talk about what's going on on you know, Orion we can do that okay all of a sudden people can see through that and they can see that the topics of of you know racial equality and 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 you know all the things that Star Trek was able to to sneak past the censors you get that in this movie there's there's things in this movie that would have made it entirely different had you not had the the fact that there's space aliens in it and the fact that they 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 put that wrapping that outer space alien wrapping around it gets you talking about topics that you normally wouldn't. Yeah.
2: So you mentioned uh, in the previous segment about you didn't particularly like the title or you thought the title was kind of misleading. Tell me more about that.
3: So when I when you think I married a monster from outer space it immediately takes me to titles like I was a teenage werewolf or I was a teenage Frankenstein, which is interesting because the director Gene Fowler Jr. Directed, I Was a Teenage Werewolf. From what I read, he, he he understood the reason for the title. He wasn't a fan of it because he felt like it uh, overshadowed what, like what we just talked about. So there's definitely some messages here in this movie that are getting overshadowed by this sensationalized title. Well, that's what the studio wanted. They wanted that sensationalized title. And then even like the images to this day that have been used in the VHS and the DVD releases the image of of Gloria Talbot on the cover wearing the veil and she's screaming, which is not in the movie in any way, shape or form. You got the alien, you know, the the vision of her husband and the half alien face in the background. Immediately to me makes you feel like you're going to be getting this kind of cheesy kind of flick that ultimately this isn't, this is a, a pretty straightforward movie, I mean, yeah, you're dealing with aliens and things like that, but it's never at any point cheesy, I don't think. In fact, some of the special effects, like when you first see the image of the alien, it's like through this 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 lightning outside and the lightning flashes and you see the image of the face, the alien face coming through, that's pretty darn effective. For 1958, it still works, you know, in 2020 as far as I'm concerned. It's a good visual and I think with the title of it and I said like the images of the DVD just kind of continues to perpetuate that sensationalizing that aspect when it's it's yet you're dealing with aliens and and marriage and stuff like that and never in an overly cheesy way I don't think interesting that this movie is coming out on blu-ray is it yeah from a company called imprint I think it is a uh, European release. Uh, I'd never heard of imprint before, mm. but this, uh, and the price tag is, is rather pricey. It's $43 on Amazon, oh. but the cover is a cool cover. It's a picture of the alien. And I think like, there's, you know, there's no screaming woman on the cover and, you know, in a veil. They've gone with a much more traditional sci-fi cover, modern, but, yeah, I, I I'm really impressed with, with the cover of it. But, again, I, I don't know imprint if that's a foreign, a foreign company or not because uh, the specs on the Amazon listing, I, I think they even referenced that it's like a foreign release or something. But it didn't say specifically that it's, you know, what region it was. Huh. I don't disagree with you. However, I
2: love the title in the marketing. And I just had a side thought as you were talking. Do you suppose because it was paired up with The Blob and maybe they tried to make them more compatible so they gave it like a sort of a lighter, funnier title to make it
3: seem like it went with The Blob since it was supposed to be a double feature? Could have. I mean, I mean, oftentimes when they did double feature releases, I mean, sometimes the movies have absolutely nothing to do with each other, right? They're like night and day. In fact, when I was, you know, doing my early research looking at the original drive-in ad for the outdoor theater. So The Blob and I Married a Monster of Outer Space, that's playing February 1st and 2nd. If we were to come back tomorrow night, we would see Randolph Scott in a Western called The Tall T, and then a dramatic biography film called Gene Eagles. If we come back on Friday... We're seeing Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs paired up with a John Agar Western called Flesh and the Spur. But then we go back with a much more traditional double feature. If we come back next weekend, we're going to see The Bride and the Beast and War of the Colossal Beast. Mm. So sometimes double features make sense. Sometimes they don't. And I think, yeah, there had to be The Blob and I Married a Monster Man of Space. And if you look even at the ad... The Blob has got a picture of a woman screaming and I married a monster amount of space is the bride with the look on her face. Yeah. There's definite connections and the marketing. Absolutely. Back to the title.
2: So I also, I don't understand it, but I think there's also an intent. There were a lot of movies that were, I married something. I married a witch was 1942. There was, I married a murderer. I married a stranger. I married a woman. So that was like a thing. And I don't know if they're trying to evoke, you know, something from those movies, but I love it. And I love that art with the bride. It it makes me want to see it. I don't know that me personally, it really plants what I think the movie's going to be like. Um, so I don't really find that contradiction as much as you do, but I totally understand what you're
3: saying. And I can I can tell you that, using our, our wondrous technology, I was able to flash forward to 2020 and use the this thing called the internet, which doesn't exist here in 1959. But I can tell you that Imprint is actually an Australian uh-huh. uh, Blu-ray company. So it is a foreign release, which thus the price of $43 makes total sense. Um, looking at their, their site, I was able to see that They've got a, uh, a really cool Blu-ray edition of One Worlds Collide. And, uh, gosh, that gives you reason to have a uh, – just another reason to have a region-free player when you see some cool releases like that that we're obviously not getting in the state. Uh, I'm because- going to say, well, it's just a
2: matter of time before Shout Factory puts it out, but I don't know. Warner Brothers seems to have it, so if anything, it's probably going to be a Warner Archive – yeah, and, and I can
3: tell you that finding a DVD copy, you're going to have to shop around. You can get a, a used copy of this movie for less than $20, uh, but it is out of print. And so don't pay more than $15 or $20 for the DVD because if you if you really want a brand-new copy, you can look to be paying 40 or $50 for it. Hmm. Um, and I actually watched it on...
2: Uh whatever apples movie thing is uh i had at some point gotten a free digital movie for something and that's the one i got it it was a great great
3: digital picture um and it's on actually at least at one point it was on youtube so you could it's not public domain so those things tend to go away but it's it is not hard to find out there but and you know, I
2: just lied to you. I that's not how I watched it. I just saw it on the big screen at the drive-in. Sorry
3: about that. <laughs> I, I, uh, I was going to call you out probably. on that. I was going to call you out on that. But yeah, <laughs> okay. You know what? I don't think we're going to get any Academy Award nominations, but that's okay. We're having a good time. Let's talk the cast on yes. this one. Some familiar faces, but not necessarily any A-list actors. Again, in this one, uh, I mean. I think Steve McQueen was A-list at one point, obviously, uh, post-Blob. Lead actor in this one is a Tom Tryon, playing the character of Bill Farrell. A lot of television work, and I've seen him in television shows. He, he was a familiar face to me, not a familiar name. Gloria Talbot it was a familiar face, playing his wife, Marge. She did lots of TV work as well, but she did a few other genre films, The Cyclops, Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, The Leech Woman. That's a movie that I want to revisit at some point. That's in one of those classic sci-fi sets that Universal put out that were Best Buy exclusives initially. That was one of those films. And I think when we were, when Carl and I a while back were watching The Incredible Shrinking Man, the trailer for The Leech Woman popped up. And she kind of looked at me and and. It was like, how come we haven't seen that? And I said, well, there's a lot of movies on these two sets we haven't seen. So I tend to forget that those sets. But there was actually, when those sets came out, there was a a ton of cool stuff that hadn't been released. Some of it hadn't even been released on VHS. Okay, so you have Peter Baldwin. May I interrupt you? Yes,
2: you may. I would like to talk a little bit more about Mr. Tom Triumph Absolutely. He was an author, and he wrote two books – that were turned into movies that are really, really good. Uh, one is the other from 1971. That was a theatrical movie. It's about the little twin boys. Uh, they're they're like uh, modern gothic sort of. I don't want to say western, but living in the country kind of gothic story. Huh, okay. And the other is the dark secret of Har- Harvest Home. The book was just Harvest Home. Uh, he wrote that movie. Yes. He. Oh is my gosh. He, He has more writing credits than he does as acting and some good, in my opinion, stuff. I think he's really perfect in this role. He's, depending on your taste, he's very handsome, but he's also very unusual looking. Uh, He's dark. He can be kind of scary looking. (laughs) This is going to sound like I'm obsessed or something, but he's got, he's very, it's got a, he's built well he's got a, a good body but it's very thin he's very lean and so all I'm what I'm saying is that to believe that he was inhabited by an alien is uh, I think it's good casting I, I think he's really good at that plus maybe I don't know what you thought of his actual performance I don't know that he's that good an actor but it fits it fits someone that has been is no longer themselves that you know, an alien is. So I, I was really struck by him. I, I thought he was good in this. I I'm,
3: I am kind of blown away on the, that book, Harvest Home. I have vivid memories of that book. My, my mom read that. The picture of the skeleton scarecrow on the cover of that book. And I saw the movie with Betty Davis. Yep. Uh, yeah. So many years ago. Um, I mean, it, and it's, it's not straightforward horror. It, it's it's it, what did you call it? He said more of a gothic. Yeah, it's gothic. I mean, it's yeah, it, it, it is horror I guess in a way, but it's it, it is a probably more gothic than than anything. A chiller. Gothic chiller might be a better description of it. Yeah, that that makes me want to revisit that that movie, but more so makes me want to get the book. Um, that's actually that book's been on Kind of a, a, a wish list for a while because I remember that cover as a kid and I remember wanting to read it. And my mom wouldn't let me read it because she said it would scare me, you know, me in that bubble. And then I don't know that I don't know Marge.
2: Uh, I, I'm drawn to Blake on her name. What was her name? Gloria Talbot. Yes, I hear that and I just think of Gloria Stewart, and of course it's not her, but she's an interesting looking woman as well. I'm comparing them both to the leads in the blob. And I think she's far better than the woman lead was in in The Blob. Yeah, she's a much better actress. I'm
3: sorry. Continue with the cast. Okay. So you have uh, Peter Baldwin playing Officer Hank. Again, he was familiar. I've probably seen him on TV work because that's about all he did. He did a lot of television work, uh, unless he was a writer of several novels that I totally (laughs) am unaware of, like Tom Tryon. I'm sitting here thinking, how did I miss that? That's so cool. Robert Ivers played Harry, Phillips, Chuck uh, Wasso played Ted Hanks, a couple of the friends. And some of them looked familiar. Again, lots of television work. So it's probably characters in the background of a TV show that I've seen at some point in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. The fact that when they made this movie, they, they made it on kind of standing sets uh, to me. And, of course, did obviously some location shots, like the one where they're at the early part of the movie where they're going to uh, the restaurant or whatever, bar or whatever. I mean, obviously that's a funny sequence where you have the two young lovers making out in the, in the car that, and they're still making out after they leave the scene. And then, then at one moment she turns and smacks them like, you've been kissing on him for like 10 minutes here. You know, and then, I meant to tell you when I went to the
2: concession stand, there was a couple making out of car and I slapped on the side of the car and they didn't
3: even flinch. Well, you know, they put a warning up during the intermission that, you know, those frisky couples would be asked to leave and that they strongly encourage, you know, I guess maybe a precursor of social distancing. Mm. I don't know. know. (laughs) The movie was written by, and I'm going to butcher the name, Louis Betess or or Weitz. He did Monster from Green Hell. He did some television work, did an episode of The Invaders, so not a lot of stuff, but he did a few things genre-related. Now Gene Fowler Jr. is interesting because he did direct I Was a Teenage Werewolf, which is what essentially got him the job to do this one, I Married a Monster from Outer Space, and that's kind of why they came up with the title to kind of capitalize on that kind of same I was a werewolf, I'm a monster kind of thing. He did some television work as a director, but he was an editor on a wide variety of TV shows. Uh, he did work on It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which I know is something you and I will be soon revisiting uh, for our good friend Steve Turek. Um, And I'm not sure we're supposed to talk about that publicly. So, Steve, I'm sorry if we gave away something, but a project that he's working on. He also did "Hang 'Em High, the Clint Eastwood flick. So his last credit, well actually was even he wasn't even credited, was a movie called The Astral Factor in 78, which I believe is public domain. I think I've seen it pop up on some of those sci-fi sets that Mill Creek used to put out. You know, you've got a few people involved that did a few things genre related probably a little bit more than when you're looking at who was behind the scenes of The Blob. You've got a film that has a more polished look to it. Um, you've got some better actors that are, that are able to make the film come across just a little bit better. And I think to me, that's why I think this movie stands the test of time a little bit better than the blob. Although I love the blob for all the reasons you said in the 1950s Americana, it has a lot more of that than I married a monster matter space does. But there is something about this movie that, and, and again, maybe it's because it's black and white. I always think these movies have a certain classiness to them. They just work really well in black and white. However, I would have loved to have seen the cloud effect in in color. I think that would have been cool. But if the whole movie would have been done in color, I don't know if like the lightning effect with the flashing alien face, that wouldn't have worked as well. I don't think in color. I think the, when you do a black and white film, you can someone who is good at directing will take advantage of, of being able to work in the shadows and be able to use light effectively. You can do things in a black and white movie that you can't do in a color movie. And I think some of those effects that they did in this film, like the, the lightning effect, would be lost in a color movie. Could you have done that sequence, maybe make the cloud colorized? I think that probably would have been pretty expensive, but it would have been pretty cool if they could have done that much like when you're watching them and you see them come at you and then bright red, you know, and blue. I mean that it stands out. And if you watch early films from the thirties, right. Where there's little random color sequences, just the other night I was flipping through the channels and on the film detective, they were playing uh, vampire bat and they were playing the, the recently restored version where the torches are, are actually in color. Right. Um, and I still, it shocked me when I saw that. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. It would have been cool if they could have done something with the the cloud effect and made it uh, appear, I don't know. I, I visualized kind of like a, a purplish kind of, you know, space nebula kind of vision. I think would have been really cool. Obviously would have been out of their budget in 1958. Yeah. I love the alien design in this. Uh, yes, I
2: think it's really, really good. I think uh, I, I don't like the glowing. I wish they didn't glow.
5: Yeah, looks um, a little you could see easy, More of them, yeah. but
2: and there's some good. I mean, I think it's a great costume, and some effects are good. When one of them gets shot, the way the bullets kind of hit the skin, slow yes. down, and then yeah. kind of got sucked in, kind of like I guess the blob. But uh, I thought that was really good. I, uh, I was going to say I wish we saw more of them, but I don't think so. I think that was fine, but, uh, and I just keep, the more we talk about this, why isn't this really talked about very much? Do you think it's just because of its availability? It hasn't been widely available. I mean, I think this is really good.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, yes, I agree with you. I want to backtrack just a second okay. right now and talk about the makeup work. Uh, Charlie Gamora is the one who did that. And he's got some interesting cred, you know, genre creds to his name. In fact, he was uncredited as one of his very first, movies was Island of Lost Souls in 32. Uh, but he also did Dr. Cyclops in 40. He, uh, he was a lot, a lot of mainstream films as well along the way. But uh, he was involved in The Naked Jungle in 54, the Ant movie with Charlton Heston, big films like The Ten Commandments and Around the World in 80 Days. Right after I Married a Monster from Outer Space, he did The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, which is another movie that I've always kind of enjoyed. It kind of has that made-for-TV-ish quality to it, yet is really entertaining. And I think that's, yeah, th- this movie, coming in the late 50s, you were starting to see maybe some, some darker subjects being introduced in films, and we were still a decade away from Night of the Living Dead. Think about some of the movies that were going to be checking out next month you, you know, like films like Horrors of blood and stuff you're starting to see we're we're entering into the 60s right and we're starting to kind of push the envelope a little bit we're seeing some slightly darker films and and this movie maybe if it was made five years earlier maybe it would have been given a bit more love we were seeing a lot of giant bug movies the outer space you know films were big in the 50s but I think that, you know, the, I think the title hurts the movie. And I, and I, I think that th- there was just this automatic, sometimes when you see the title of the film, you automatically have this vision of, well, what am I, you know, what's the movie going to be like? And sometimes people don't take the time to sit down and check it out. I mean, what, there's Teenagers from Outer Space movie, you know, that came out, I think, around this time period. And if you see a title of a film, you like, Ega right? I mean, <laughs> and you immediately, and you see the poster, and you're like, all right, well, that's about a, a caveman. Well, I mean, essentially, that's what it is, right? Sometimes the, the titles pretty much give away what the movie's like. Teenagers from Outer Space, pretty much what you get. This one, there's a lot more to it than just marrying a monster from Outer Space. Yes, that's part of the plot, but I think the way that it's executed is, is a lot more it deserves a lot more love. I don't know what you would call it. hadn't really thought about that, but I think that they maybe could have come up with something that might have attracted to people a little bit more. I don't know. But as you said, from a marketing perspective, it kind of it goes hand-in-hand hand with what the blob was. When you look at the picture, that's exactly what they were going for. So I think that's what's kind of hurted. And I think for some reason, it seems to kind of stand on its own. It doesn't get clumped in with any other genre, right? I mean, the giant bug movies all kind of go hand in hand. You talk about the deadly mantis, tarantula, them, what have you. I never hear of this movie getting paired up with any other movies because how many other movies deal with monsters coming from outer space and marrying the women? And it doesn't get clumped up with other stuff like Mars Needs Women or stuff because those are clearly a bit more tongue-in-cheek than this one. Uh, yeah, this one just kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. Justly, Not perfect. I have a couple of little nitpicky things.
2: First of all, we mentioned that, you know, one by one, his friends and, and people all around town become assimilated. And one of them comes over to their house and uh, in the ruse of business. And, you know, uh, Bill keeps wanting to get the contract. It's like he doesn't know the other one's an alien. And so yeah. that was kind of odd to me. Do they not know, recognize each other in the human bodies? The other thing is there's sort of a hint that this is going on worldwide. Or I guess, no. let me take that back. You kind of wonder if it is. And at the end, I think you know it is because all of those flying saucers leave the Earth. Yeah. But is it this one little incident in this one little town that caused all the aliens to flee? I just thought that was kind of weird. I mean I could see that little cluster in town leaving, but for every single alien on earth to leave. Yeah. So like I said, nitpicky. That
3: that actually happens in a lot of other sci-fi movies, right? I mean when they when and you think about like War of the Worlds, for example, you know, it's like it's one little pocket. You try to visualize, well, you know, would the aliens give up that easy? There's a, a TV show a few years ago. I can't remember the name of it. It's like something with skies in it. It was made for TNT that dealt with aliens and stuff. And it seemed like, you know, just because like the one one group of aliens were defeated that they all decide to, oh, time to go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of a um, sci-fi plot point that sometimes you just have to kind of overlook a little. I guess it indicates maybe
2: they had a hive mentality or something and. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Good. Absolutely. Why wouldn't
2: they recognize each other? <laughs> <laughs> it's, all right. What else you got?
3: Well, I, you know, I, I wanted to say this was kind of similar to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, yes. and, and, and there's a lot of similarities. But I think we, we get a different take from these aliens as opposed to the Body Snatchers. I feel like they're a more emotion, obviously, potential for these aliens, whereas in Body Snatchers, I don't think there's any emotions involved. It's just very point blank. They purge those emotions. Yeah, a couple of things. One, uh, a Star Trek reference that I almost missed from the, the cast, the doctor, Dr. Wayne, is played by Ken Lynch. Um, he appears in a 1967 episode called Devil in the Dark, which is the one with the Horda. He plays the humans in the mining colony that initially wants to kill it and then realizes that, well, there's more to the, the Horta than just a mindless creature. And did you know that this movie was actually remade in 1998? I did not. I did not either, with the uh, actors Richard Bergey, or Bergey, and Susan Walters. And in fact, it's, a, it's kind of a remake, or maybe a pseudo-sequel of sorts, because they include, apparently, a picture of Tom Tryon and Gloria Talbot as Bill and Marge Farrell. And I guess there's a reference to the fact that they are the parents of... Richard Burgi's character in the movie. That's about all I can really tell you on that. I, it doesn't seem to have a lot of love. I've never seen it, so I don't know if it, how it how they approach the the fact that is it a sequel, is it a remake? But it it does seem like it's it's more of a sequel of sorts. Maybe the aliens come back and try again, and but it seems like they're trying the same plot that they did the first time, and. Decades later it seems kind of weird. I don't know. Not
2: knowing. Now I have got to find that. But I'm looking at it. First of all, it's just called I Married a Monster. That That's yes. why I didn't yep. realize that's what that was. And sad, I see Richard Hurd is in that. He died this week.
3: Um, yes. I know him from V. Wasn't he in V? He was in V. He was also uh, in Star Trek Voyager. He played Admiral Paris. Uh, Roundabout
2: Way, another Star Trek reference. Yes, there. actually.
3: Yeah. And, and yeah that's about all that I had on the movie. Uh, you know, as far as, as, uh, little snippets and trivia, I really enjoyed this one. I just revisited this. Uh, I think maybe even just like last year, Carl and I watched this and I honestly don't know how, what are the circumstances? Cause this isn't on Spenguli, So maybe I just randomly picked it and said, you know, cause that's, Sometimes we do that. There's lots of classic movies that Carla hasn't seen, and I thought this might be something fun she'd enjoy, and she did. So this was a revisit. It was pretty fresh in my mind. Uh, I enjoyed it just as much as I did the last time we watched it. I would like a better copy of it, although the copy I have is is not bad. My personal collection is an MP4 off of YouTube, and it's not bad. I'd love for us to get a Blu-ray copy of this movie here in the States, but, you know all depends on rights issues and who owns the rights. And with Warner brothers owning it and having the most recent version of this been a archive collection, pretty much. I think once the movie goes into the archive collection, that's it. I mean, I I don't, I haven't seen them make any effort. I don't believe to take DVDs from the archive collection and put them out on Blu-ray or do any extras or anything like that. So this, this movie may be something that, encourages people who have region-free players to seek out the Australian Blu-ray of it. Could be interesting.
2: I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I am really, really down on Warner Brothers these days. Uh, You know, we talked way back, we talked about Dr. Sleep and how they poorly marketed that, Birds of Prey, what they're doing with this uh, HBO Max thing, which I still do not understand. What is that? Is that HBO plus other stuff? what's going to happen to HBO. They're taking stuff from DC universe and putting it on there instead of on DC universe. And I know that yeah. hasn't been really doing well, but I finally got it and I love it. That's where I'm reading a lot of my old comic books. So I guess AT&T owns them now. And I, they're a great company. I, I love their phone service, but what they're doing with their properties is just, I don't get it. And I don't like
3: I it. I totally agree. I, I, with the the CW, for example, if you you know you you go in on a tangent, I'll go on a brief tangent and think that well, how they've handled the home video release of Crisis on Infinite Earths is is a big tragedy. They put so much marketing into this big five part story, right? That was this big moment, and I feel like they have lost any momentum that they had. They come out of that and all the shows are handling post-crisis a little differently from Batwoman to legends, to flash, to Supergirl. It seems like there's different levels. Everybody seems to remember what it was like before, but not, you know, if there's a new character that's introduced, well, here, let me tap you on the forehead. And magically you remember to me, that's a, that's a huge Cop out on the writing, lazy, beyond lazy. I've been incredibly disappointed by that. So now, if you want to go back and revisit this huge five-part story, good luck, because the individual episodes were actually part of the production of other shows. So one part was part of Arrow, one was part of you know Supergirl, one was part of you know uh, Legends, one was Flash, and one was Batwoman, right? So those individual episodes are put as part of the package of those shows when they go into syndication or go rather go into home video release. So like if you want to watch it on Netflix, you've got to go to the flash and then you got to go to arrow and then you've got to go here. When you get them on Blu-ray for home release, you're going to have to do the same. You are getting one episode. they are not adding all the other episodes. Oh, and by the way, Batwoman isn't on Netflix. It's going to be on HBO Max. So that one episode isn't going to be there. It's going to be on another streaming service that you're going to have to rent or you know sign up for. Absolutely horrible. Add to the fact that you know, you've had the coronavirus, which obviously you can't prevent, but it's, it's halted the production of shows. And they wrapped up the seasons without the big cliffhangers. They did the best they could. None of the shows are coming back until 2021. Supergirl is not coming back until the summer of 2021. There will be approximately, from what I've been told, at least a 12 to 13-month gap between the final episode of Supergirl and where they pick the story up next. A year later, you're going to lose a lot of momentum there. Uh, You've got the recasting of Ruby Rose and Batwoman. (laughs) I just... And that's classic Warner Brothers, right? They don't know what they're doing. Now I've heard that, what's his name, um, Henry Cavill, is coming back as Superman now. But they're not going to give him his own Superman movie. He's going to be featured as Superman in other films. It makes, none of it makes any sense. Warner Brothers, at and DC, the whole lot. Just, you know, I sit back and I, I, you think, well, somebody somewhere has got a plan. They don't. They, they take this glob of goo and they throw it on the wall. And does it stick? Hey, that's what we need to do. And if it doesn't stick, okay, well, now get this new glob of glue. And then, yeah, it's, it's so frustrating. That, that's my rant. I, I agree with you, and I'm taking it to the next level. It frustrates me. Uh, because just I was so hyped.
2: That if you'll recall, when we were talking about crisis, I kept saying, yeah, that sounds great. But it really depends on, on what they do with it after that for me, you know. So, yeah, I agree with
3: you. I think it's a jump the shark moment for the for the Arrowverse. Honestly, I think they're going to. And the, the virus is just going to anticipate it. And, and I think that any momentum they had is has been lost. And I think that uh, that's, in my opinion, I could be wrong. And if I am, I'll, I'll be very happy to, to admit it because I really did love the Arrowverse shows, but I think their, their peak was crisis. And I think coming off of that, we're, we're now in the downhill stretch because there's been absolutely no talk about the Arrow and the Canaries possible series because, and that ended in a cliffhanger. That episode ended with his son being taken away. They introduced these this, the story and then, they're not doing anything with it. it they're, they're dropping that entirely. The show hasn't been picked up for a series. Uh, uh, I need a drink.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but yet there are good things coming out of it. I think Stargirl is amazing. Did you ever watch the, the first I have. I have not. I, I do need to check it out. I do, I am curious about Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol is great. So, and this is where I'm becoming really, really fond of DC Universe because those shows were on there. But now, see, I'm even disappointed in that because Stargirl, and you can tell, it has a different style than the CW shows. And it's the same style as the DC Universe shows. So you can watch that a day before it's on the CW on DC Universe. Then it's on Doom Patrol. I don't know if it's going to be on DC universe, but it's going to be on HBO max. So, uh, okay.
3: Well, the and swamp thing, swamp thing, which was canceled is now going to be on the CW. They're, they're going to be airing that on the CW. So when you do that, it does make it like, well, so you're trying to sell an app, but then you're taking the shows that are on this app and you're putting it out there. So like, If you're trying to get me to buy your app based on Stargirl, I guess I don't really need to, do I? Because I can just watch it on regular television. That sets up kind of – I get what you're trying to maybe get them hooked, so maybe that's the thought. It's like, we're going to put season one on the CW, but then if you want season two, you need to go to – well, Which app do you go with, with, though? Is it the DC app, or is it going to go on the HBO Max? Batwoman – is not going to be on Netflix. Their show when that season's done, those episodes will go on HBO Max. Anything going forward will apparently will be on HBO Max, but the old shows were under the old deal, so they'll continue to go on to Netflix. Muddies the water even more. And then when you do a big multi-arc story and then you can't go back and revisit it. So like you get you get that one shot to watch it. Otherwise, then good luck if you're going to try to watch it streaming or whatever because now you need multiple apps. If you buy the Blu-ray sets, you need multiple Blu-ray sets to get a story. When they did Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman, when they put those out on on DVD, they put both stories of all their, their crossover stories were on both sets. So if you were a Bionic Woman fan, you didn't have to get the $6 million man set to get the other parts of the story and vice versa. That's the way it should be done, not spreading a story out over multiple sets.
2: And, and they're missing an opportunity too. Why not take those five episodes, put them together in a DVD set, charge twice as much,
3: I'd buy that. And they said, they actually were asked about that in an interview months ago, and they said they can't because every show, has its own set of of showrunners. And you're even though they're all owned by the same company, you're dealing with the multiple, you know, rights issues and 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 you're dealing with all of the uh, the residuals and goes this way and that way. And so there's no cohesion there. Great idea to do a multi part story, but dropping the ball totally that you wouldn't put this out on a Blu-ray said I'd buy it in a heartbeat. If they put all five parts on a Blu-ray, absolutely missed huge missed opportunity there.
2: Yeah. I'm sorry. I just deleted all of those off my DVR. I should have kept them. Cause I could have watched them. You could have, you could have. So what are we talking about? Is this, yes.
3: is this the uh, podcast or is this we the.
2: I actually uh, had two brief comments to make uh, on. I married a monster from outer space. First of all, right. all we, we talked about how this wasn't really a bad alien, blah, blah, blah. Well, he's not too kind to animals. We, we can't forget that. This is a movie that will go there and have the death of dogs and cats. So that's kind of sad. The other thing and this, what do you think of this idea? This is a movie begging for me that when it's all said and done and Marge is standing there at the end, she rubs her stomach because she is indeed pregnant. Mm. That's where it ends. Wouldn't that be
3: cool? Yeah, that would be, that would that would be something they wouldn't have done in '58. No, because and... they even they even hinted at the fact that well, there's 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 sex going on because well, they're not pregnant and they've been trying for a year. Even that was kind of borderline for '58 because still at that point, married couples slept in separate beds, don't you know? Yeah, so but that would be a perfect ending, absolutely. You know, that may- maybe in the remake, you know.
2: If they were to do a remake, yeah, I'd be absolutely They need to remake The Blob and I Married a Monster from Outer Space today and do a new double feature. That'd be awesome.
3: Double features are, you know, and every movie doesn't need to be two and a half hours long. Right. Um, Sometimes 75 minutes is an absolutely perfect length. I would love the heck out of a good old-fashioned double feature, 75-minute, two couple, two 75-minute movies or – you know, two 65-minute movies. Sometimes that's all you need. And you're still getting your money's worth in the ticket price. Throw in some fun stuff like the cartoons and stuff. Warren Theater down in Wichita did that. When they opened up down there, they would always start every, every movie with a cartoon. Uh, and they would play the cartoon like five minutes before showtime or whatever. So it didn't really hurt the showtime. They stopped doing that when there was that trend of big, long mammoth, you know, Lord of the Rings movies. And, and there was that period of time there where every movie had to be like three hours long. And so they had to quit and they'd stop playing the cartoons. And, you know, now that the, the Warren theaters has gone under, well, they sold out to a theater chain and stuff. I don't know. I think that's uh that would be fun to see that kind of stuff return to the movie theaters. Absolutely.
2: Well, gosh, I think we're one of the last cars here. I think we better, um, get the heck out of here. There's a couple more things look
3: like they've got to tell us, but I think it's time to, to fire up the way back uh, home machine and uh, let's see what they have to say. And then uh, maybe on the way home, we can we can go through our, our usual to wrap up the this club meeting. We can talk about news releases and anniversaries and birthdays and maybe even tell people where we're headed next month. That sounds
2: great. Let's do that.
0: now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Your attention, please. If you're leaving the theater, please hang your speaker on the speaker stand before starting your car. Don't take chances on accidents which may damage your car. If you accidentally tear off your speaker, please don't be frightened, simply turn it in. There is no charge for reinstalling speakers.
2: was really fun, Richard. We, we need to do that again. And you know what? I really think they appreciated our patronage,
3: don't you? I believe that they did. And, and I know that I got my proteins from my, uh, my hot dog and snow caps.
2: You know what? I forgot to say the Star Trek references. I kept expecting you to say one and you didn't. Now, does it count if it's a reference, if it's uh, equipment, not a person? Uh, it could,
3: yeah. What's what uh,
2: supposedly the guns the aliens used in *I Married*? Yes, were looked like sawed-off versions of the the Star Trek. thing. I, I yes, I, and
3: I mean, uh, I mean that's like oh, so many years before they used, and, and uh different studios. I don't know. I suppose the there could be a coincidence. Could be maybe they found an old prop and kind of went with that. I don't know. I. I remember reading something about the Klingon hand-weapon props, but it's been so long ago. It might just be more coincidence, but I don't know. That could be a Star Trek reference that I totally missed.
4: Well, you know,
3: they're everywhere. No Dr. Who references, though, unfortunately.
2: All righty, so... Let's go to our June video releases. I started looking at this month, Richard, and we remember we were wondering what effects the coronavirus would have on releases. Okay. And man, the first couple of weeks I thought, oh, this is it, this is the effect. But in a lot of months, there's not really stuff till the end. But we have a few notable in June. On June 2nd, they came from Beyond Space from 1967 is coming out on Kino Lorber. Uh, I finally saw it on YouTube or something. It's an Amicus movie, so I've always wanted to see it wasn't that great but i i think that it's now going to be more readily available so we'll probably be more seen and more more talked about
3: who's in that one is that is that the one i'm thinking of Why would do you ask that have, well the aliens at the end revealed i think isn't it like where there's like in a in a english village or something or a town and they're like outside the town So robert hutton and Jennifer well, Jane. They
2: have these weird goggles that look like 3D. Yeah. yeah
3: what's the rest of the cast?
2: Uh, nobody I know. Jennifer Jane, Zia, Moyedin, Bernard K., Michael Guff. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, that, that's, that's it. All right. Yeah. That, that's that's, that's, not, that's not a bad flick. I, I actually like that one. That's yeah. kind of fun. Uh, I don't think I like it. I rated it a 4 out of 10, so.
3: I mean, Relatively speaking, a four, you can still enjoy that movie. Oh, yeah. I, I enjoy it to some extent. I mean, I have seen films like Bloodsucking Freaks and Cannibal Holocaust recently. So a four-star film, hey, I'm all for it. Absolutely.
2: All right. On the 16th, we get nothing on the 9th, but on the 16th, we have The Giant Spider Invasion from 1975 on a label called Dark Force Entertainment. I don't know if I have any DVDs or Blu-rays on from Dark Force and then uh, Paramount is repackaging Friday the 13th once again, but I, it's a steel book. I don't know if there's been a steel book before Friday the 13th, and the art looks really cool. So. For some reason, I thought there was. But. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Uh, the 23rd, and I, I wonder if we've had a couple delays, because I swear The Spider from 1958 was coming out earlier, uh, Earth versus the Spider, as well as on the 30th Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell from 1974. I th- I thought they were coming out earlier than that, but regardless, they're coming out in June, as is Orca the Killer Whale from 1977, also from Shout Factory. So a few things here and there coming out in June. Um,
3: you, I think you missed one. I missed one. What did I miss? Murder by Decree. The It's a Sherlock Holmes movie, tied into our Sherlock Holmes month. Uh, it's coming out June 23rd from uh, Kina Lorber. And uh, this is the first time that it's going to be out on Blu-ray. Uh, this is a fun flick. It's got Christopher Plummer as uh, Sherlock Holmes. It's got James Mason, uh, Sir John Gielgud, uh, Anthony Quayle, Susan Clark, Genevieve Bujold, And, of course, it's it's uh, it's a really fun flick. Highly recommend it. So I'm, I'm actually looking forward to getting that on Blu-ray. I've got a uh, off-air copy of it. Is that the one that you thought we should
2: have watched instead of the one we watched?
3: Yes. Yep. Exactly.
2: Okay. Birthdays in the month of June. few of mentioned. Of course, we only always just mention a few. But June 3rd of 1901 was Morris Evans. Maurice Evans. Planet of the Apes. What? This is another
3: one that I think you might have missed unless I missed it. Let's Kill Uncle well i see that right here what is that that's a william castle movie it's it's, uh it's one that's been overlooked a lot because it's it's uh not been widely available for a lot of years but that's coming out from kino lorber on june 2nd
2: on blu-ray wow that name is familiar for some reason but uh sorry about that man i uh my site
3: that i use is uh, not trustworthy i guess or maybe i have not i have not seen that one um And it's, again, it's one of those films that's been harder to find. But um, I I think I saw it back in the day. I vaguely remember the plot of that movie many, many decades ago. So, anyway, I'm going to shut up now. (laughs) Anything else before I go back to the birthdays? I think that's it. I think we're
2: good. Thank you, thank you. Next time you do the research on that. I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. We want to be complete. So, June 3rd, like I said, Maurice Evans... Planet of the Apes, Dr. Zaius. I will do a plug here. He was in a TV movie called The Brotherhood of the Bell, which I wrote about a couple weeks ago. And again, I'll talk about that more later. On the 13th in 1892, Basil Rathbone, there's your Sherlock Holmes reference. Okay. June 26, 1904, Peter Lorre. And June 29th, 1920. June 29th. Wow. Am I calculating right a hundred years later this year? 1920 yeah yeah it'd be wow well Steve Sullivan will be sitting watching TV all day because it's Ray Harryhausen's birthday is it really wow okay he was born June 29th 1920 2020 would be 100 years
3: that would be yeah for some wow. reason I think he did that already but maybe maybe not maybe that is yeah that's kind of okay that's cool yeah he will be most definitely June
2: anniversaries of movies that came out, these are movies with the exception of one that we have talked about before. June 9th, 1978, Damien, Omen 2. June 10th, 1970, Count Yorga Vampire. June 11th, 1969, The Oblong Box. And then the whole black um, sheep of this group, I guess, June 15th, 1957, The Giant Claw. Ah, oh, The Giant Claw. I
3: love The Giant Claw. I love,
2: dearly love The Giant Claw. Gosh, how are we going to pass the time till we get home? Why don't you tell me what, what's going on with you, Richard? What are you up to?
3: Well, uh, you know, in the month of May, I, I spent the month taking a look at Vincent Price non-horror movies. Um, that was kind of fun. And I uh, wrapped that up uh, with actually even did like a, I should almost maybe do a bonus Vincent Price thing. Because watched the movie Dead Heat for the first time, courtesy of uh, Joe Bob Briggs in The Last Drive-In. Uh, Vincent Price doesn't have a huge part in that, but uh, other than Edward Scissorhands, and that's not necessarily horror, more fantasy, Dead Heat was kind of his last horror role, really. But for those of you who are into seeing Vincent Price in some non-horror roles, I would highly recommend movies like Lever to Heaven uh... which is a fabulous movie uh... i would also uh... really recommend the whales of august if you somehow skipped that movie as i did for so many years that's a really excellent film a little sad but really incredibly well done and it's got lillian gish and betty davis harry Carey jr and southern that's uh... that's a fun flick and i'm kind of uh, we're we're going kind of switching gears a little bit as we get dive into summer over at kccinephile.com. We are doing A Summer with Stan and Ollie. Uh, we did Marx Brothers movies last year, and that was fun. It was a nice kind of lighthearted break. And so this year we're diving into uh, the films of Laurel and Hardy. They did a lot of uh, short subjects, but then they also did a lot of feature films. So rather than cover every single thing they did, which would be impossible or very time-consuming, we're covering just the feature films and films that they were actually stars in and not just cameo appearances. They did a couple films where they were like kind of featured guest stars that were I'm going to talk about but not review them the same way that we're doing the other films. That'll take us all the way through the end of summer in September. We'll have to do some doubling up towards the end. They did a lot more movies than the Marx Brothers, but that's been a lot of fun. I haven't seen some of these Laurel and Hardy shorts in 30 years honestly so it's been uh, that's been a lot of fun and that's kind of what we're doing I think there'll be some other stuff over the course of summer nothing really no series or anything coming up kind of just wanting to revisit some films and, and some stuff that I don't know I may or may not talk about Carl and I recently watched the first two Mummy films and going to revisit the the third Mummy film I'm talking the, the Brendan Fraser movies Wanting to, to, to revisit the Back to the Future trilogy. Haven't seen that for so many years. The Indiana Jones films, kind of summer ish films in my mind, you know, kind of fun summer trilogies or how many films? I guess there's five, four films in Indiana Jones on a trilogy, nonetheless. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of, uh, kind of going into the summer without any major plans other than Laurel and Hardy. Uh, other stuff will come along the way. I think we're going to see some Santo films, which I may or may not talk about. And then still doing my uh, OTR Wednesdays, uh, which is always fun. Just throwing out some old-time radio shows. Kind of like, tied that in this last month with some Sherlock Holmes and Vincent Price. My uh, regular monthly feature on uh, the Memiverse, And I sit here. It's It's May 30th as we record, and I don't know if I'll be... Coming up with an idea, I, I have I'm just totally caught off guard that it is June. I offering. was
2: going to ask you what the this month's topic. Was. I, I don't love know. We did last month? Thanks for the the uh, cross plugging or cross promotion. That was I, nice to tie it into us. So
3: I, I yeah, so I, may with, to, uh, I may have to have to come up with a plan to kind of do the same. I don't know. I have to. This kind of caught me off guard. June, hey, can you uh, can you find a copy of uh, the wear the Blob and and watch that and tie that into. I may do that. I might do that. If, if it's, I'll have to reach out to Mr. Mim and see what my deadline is. Um, usually he sends me a friendly reminder, and I haven't got one yet. So we'll see. If, I, if you know what, there is no June Kansas City Crypt, uh, there will definitely be one for July. And I will be featured on the June 1st Dread Media episode number 666, um, he has got a you think our episodes are long <laughs> episode 666 is over seven hours long holy cow let me let me pull up and tell you what what he's uh what he's doing here are what you gonna be on live like you were for the
2: whatever he did before when you
3: kind of sort of yeah he I, it's I recorded it already with him and, and I was and his whole thing is he's wanting to ask his guests kind of what's what's your favorite satan you know, whether it's film, print, comic, what have you, is there, is there something out there that... No know, spoiler that, alert, don't tell us what you said. I, I do a fun one, I, in a movie that I'm willing to bet most of you haven't seen. I watched a movie, it's not my favorite, but I watched a movie about someone who's, who's prominent in the satanic community. Or he wanted to be prominent, and he's really more of a, of a sideshow Pardon? kind of person. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we talk about that movie, and if you are a patron of Dread Media, Desmond Reddick actually did a commentary for the movie that he and I talked about because he had never seen it. I inspired him, and so he threw that out there. So if you're a patron, you actually got that a couple of days ago where he, he sat down and, and gave his thoughts on this crazy movie. Here's the stats for the show. Uh, giving out a plug to someone else's show, but episode 666 being over seven hours long, I believe we'll have 37 guests, 36 interviews, 31 audio clips, seven songs, and, yes, seven hours and 16 minutes – he had to send it in two parts through <laughs> through uh, for the patrons. It will be a one big massive file when it goes onto your various podcatchers. I am proudly one of those thirty seven guests. You got to tell me if you figure out at what uh, minute you are,
2: because you know I don't listen to that whole. Thing.
3: I I you know I normally don't do that, but I will in this case <laughs> because that that is a time commitment for anybody. And sadly, I finally think I just got caught up on Dread Media, and then this seven-part, seven-hour episode comes in. I will, when I post that, I'll figure out where I'm at in the mix. Might take me a little while to figure out where I am in seven hours, but I will give everyone a heads up on that. So, um, and we had about a, I think a, I'm not sure how much it's going to come through, but roughly about a ten-minute conversation might be a little more than that, but kind of a fun conversation on this movie that is. Uh, readily available i obviously when it when it goes live um, i'll post what the movie is what we talk about and uh, i'll throw out a link to the movie on youtube it's an interesting pseudo documentary on uh, on a name that many people will 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 know mm, can't wait that's what's going on with me what about you sir well same old
2: same old i'm in a pretty good routine of, of posting Mondays uh, movie review, Wednesdays DC comic guy. I did just finish Wonder Woman without powers, and we'll be going now for the summer into Freedom
3: Fighters. Gave a little. Well, let me just say real quick. I loved your Wonder Woman series. I had only read a couple of those over the years, the Brave and the Bold ones, and so I had a lot of fun with this. And and I that I feel was such a missed opportunity for some more. I think they could have done more with that. It just seemed like it ended so abruptly and kind of mid-story. DC apparently <laughs> they didn't know what have they were doing together back then either. No, apparently not. Anyway, and I'm really looking forward to Freedom Fighters. I know you gave a tease of that last 4th of July with Uncle Sam. I loved the Freedom Fighters back in the day, and you know, I've got such a huge stack of comics to read but you're really tempting me to get out my freedom fighters and join with you along your journey. And I think I'm going to have to do that anyway. I'm sorry. I just, I needed to give oh. a it, I'm really enjoying what you're doing over there. So oh, thank you. I appreciate that.
2: And uh, then Fridays on TV terror guide, we moved into uh, TV horror movies of the seventies. We've mentioned that a couple of times this episode. Uh, I'm using a great book, Uh, as my guide called television fright films of the 70s oh yeah yeah Uh, and i'm trying to go chronologically i didn't realize i was going to go chronologically at first so i got a couple out of order but we're still in 1970 i've done ritual of evil brotherhood of the bell how awful about alan Uh, last week i did night slaves coming up this week will be the house that would not die and then Crowhaven farm will uh, wrap up the 70s before we move into 71. That's fun. I've wanted to do that for a long time and uh, when I saw this book, even though it's McFarland it's a really decent price. It's got this fantastic chronological list uh, of when they aired and what network. Please tell me that Dozer is on the... Oh, you know it is. You uh, know awesome. it is. Awesome. Yeah, so looking forward to that. Uh, what else? No other podcasts for me sadly I restrict myself to print although the demand is great but uh, you know
3: anyway I I think that's it you know you mentioned uh, McFarlane and I I totally forgot to give a shout out to the book that I used in doing some research obviously I do stuff online but I I, I've got a a big library. And sometimes I forget about some of the stuff I have. This one I knew right away that I wanted to use, and I, I'm showing you this copy. It's "Keep Watching the Skies," uh, American Science Fiction Movies of the 50s by Bill Warren, originally published as two volumes, and both movies were covered in Volume Two, which covered 1958 to 1962, uh, which is obviously beyond the end of the 1950s, but. Well, um, this this book i've got the mcfarland uh classics as as they put on the side um it is a soft cover combination of volume one and two this book is something that means a lot to me because it was actually previously owned by vince Rotolo. um many years ago he was upgrading his his copy because they were coming out with a a new revised version in order for him to get that he said i've got to do something with my original copy and how fast did your hand shoot up in the air do (laughs) what how how fast did your hand shoot up in the air (laughs) yes i know um i reached out to said i'm absolutely interested in it i I didn't pay him for it um my money went towards him being able to get the revised version which was pricey it's mcfarland their their stuff is not cheap but i got this for a steal absolute steal and it is my gosh I think it's the definitive book on science fiction movies of the 50s. Bill Warren does an amazing job. Have you ever seen it? Or do I you have, have this in your collection? No, I sure don't. I mean, it's a thick book when you get both volumes. It's absolutely uh, uh, it is priceless honestly to, to have. And so I know that you know, there's a revised version out there. Yeah, the fact that this was owned by Vince uh, means a lot to me that I've got it in my collection. I'm giving a shout out to Vince because I know he loved sci-fi movies of the fifties and, and, uh, loved the whole experience and, and that time period and cars and drive-ins and stuff. So this summer making me think of Vince, you know what, let's just, I'll dedicate this summer to Vince Bertolo without him. Many of us wouldn't be doing what we're doing and I wouldn't be here. I don't believe without his early support. So be thinking of him this summer. Um, if we can't make it to monster bash this year, uh, we can be there in spirit at least. And uh, what a better place to be than our Wayback Machine and going to these classic drive in movies. Very good. And I think
2: let's do it again next month.
3: Absolutely. You know well, what? we going to do? Where are we going to go? Well, we're going to see some films and we're going to go back to a year that I, I, I think we've got it nailed down. I think it's going to be 1963. But the movies we're going to see are going to be a little older than that. We're going back to the Badger fourplex drive-in in Madison, Wisconsin. They had a, what do you call it? It's not a triple feature, a f- quadrilogy, I guess. They had four films. We're going to skip the first movie, which is Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory, because we both kind of it- talked about it's going to take us a little longer to get there. And, it, you know, it, I can't get up early. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And plus, three other movies. That's a pretty, pretty full night of entertainment. And what three films they're going to be, it's going to be fun. Corridors of Blood and The Haunted Strangler, a Boris Karloff double feature, one of which featuring Christopher Lee. And then the third flick, a first time viewing for me Fiend Without a Face. So uh, we're, we're going to be heading north of Florida, not to Alaska, but to Madison, Wisconsin, for the Badger fourplex drive-in triple feature. That's where we're headed next month. Great.
2: And if anybody lives in Wisconsin, is that where Steve lives?
3: I think that might
2: doesn't he look? I think so. Well, all right, Steve, it's your turn. Find us some history on this theater and uh,
3: and send us a, a clip that we can use next week. I may have to, we have may have to reach out to him and say, look, we, we had connections down in Florida. Let's see what the connections are up there in the Madison area and, and see if there's any knowledge about the Badger Fourplex, or maybe if he knows the area. Where, where is it now? I, I believe it is gone in 2020 i believe it's an industrial complex now steve if you're listening i'll reach out to you as well we'll, we'll uh, see what we can uh, find out about the whereabouts of the badger in 2020 but we know that in 1963 they were having a pretty cool night of uh, films and that's where we're
2: headed next time yeah and and so if steve does decide to do that let's remind him how to do it and and everyone else as well we have our our hotline if you will 616 616- email classichorrors.club at gmail.com you can rate us on Apple Podcast and please, please, you are invited to join our Facebook group page The Classic Horrors Club Podcast. You got anything else? I'm good. Well, you know what? I've got this great song now that we're back in 2020. It's on my iPhone. I downloaded it from Apple Music. It's by an artist called John Cooper Clark, his 2002 compilation, the very best of John Cooper Clark. I really want you to hear this song. It's called I Married a Monster from Outer Space. That sounds awesome. All right. Well, we're about home. I'll drop you off and uh, we'll see everyone the next month. Take care, everyone. Stay safe.
3: an alien being whose skin was jelly, whose teeth were green. She had the big bug eyes
1: and the death ray glare. Feet like water wings, purple air. I was over the moon. I asked her back to my place and then I married the
5: monster from outer space.